Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson. Producer and co-host Jason Daphnis here as always. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jason. And uh, this uh, this week we have a very special edition of the show. Uh, it's a little bit similar to what we did uh, a few months ago uh, with the sad passing of Florian Schneider from Kraftwerk. Uh, I guess every once in a while there's a musician that sort of... Uh, is maybe innovative enough and really just made a mark in music and their instrument uh, that, that really changed things. And I think, uh, sadly, um, if you've been paying attention to the world of music in the past uh, week, week and a half, you've, uh, you've heard the, the sad news that Eddie Van Halen uh, of Van Halen uh, has passed away. And so we wanted to do a, uh, a special edition about Van Halen, talk about the band, talk about their music, and also Eddie himself and his, uh, his uh, impact on on music and, and specifically his impact on the art of electric guitar, which is hard to really understate. And uh, this week to, to help us kind of talk about Van Halen and Eddie's uh, legacy is uh, the man that uh, literally wrote the book on the band, uh, Greg Renoff. He's the author of Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. Um, Greg, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I should also, uh, we should also plug, uh, which is also related because he's the producer of Van Halen is, is, is in addition to many, many other uh, famous uh, and very big uh, bands in rock music. Uh, Greg's most current book is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, uh, which I'm very, very excited to uh, read as well because, you know, obviously he was the Van Halen producer, but he worked with everyone from Van Morrison to Captain Beefheart to... Jason, your beloved Doobie Brothers. Yeah. Um, to, yeah, he's, I mean, Templeman really worked with a, a, a large cast of very big characters. So I'm sure that was an amazing, uh, you know, chance to be able to talk with him about his life and Van Halen. Uh, but I, uh, I, I just want to start off, Greg, is that, uh, I, I so much enjoyed the book. I kind of one of those things I, I, had, I hadn't really been listening to a lot of Van Halen for a long time and I kind of had gotten back into him. And then I'd, I'd seen your book. We'd interacted on Twitter a little bit, but, uh, Van Halen Rising basically traces their um, their saga from you know when they were all children, um, and and Eddie and Alex Van Halen have a very interesting uh, or kind of origin story, um, and you know come from sort of hard hard scrabble uh, mm-hmm. you know background, and up through the uh, creation getting signed and the creation of their first record and the big tour with Black Sabbath that sort of follows that. Um, so for one, I guess, you know, I just want to start off as, you know, obviously, you know, Van Halen is a very important band to you. How have you been feeling since Eddie passed? I mean, I know that it must be kind of a blow, uh, given how much that uh, he and his music meant to you. Yeah, I uh, I appreciate you saying, um, you know, kind of voicing it as a blow, because it really, it really was. I think there have been a lot of whispers and, you know, I think semi-public discourse about the fact that Eddie wasn't in great health. I think people knew that. I mean, I'm not some insider who was sort of, you know, given up-to-date stuff. But I think it was kind of um, known, if people were paying attention, that something had happened in 2019 that had prevented them from touring with uh, Roth and with potentially with Michael Anthony. And that was actually confirmed by Irving, Irving Azoff um, soon after Ed passed that that actually was a real thing that was going to happen. And so... Um, the fact that that didn't happen when Roth was talking about it in certain interviews that they were going to do stadiums, like you kind of had a sense that something had gone amiss. And then uh, again, hearing whispers that Eddie wasn't a hundred percent. So 
that's a long-winded way of saying that you're sort of prepared for the worst. That you sort of think, well, this 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 person probably isn't in the best of health, and something could happen. But yeah, it was it was. Um, I don't know if shock's the right word. It was just sort of this finale that ended a whole chapter of my life, and it sounds kind of silly to say that in some ways because it's just a band, but it also was sort of my entire rock consciousness from 1984 on through you know then was always thinking about what's van halen going to do next and i didn't have tremendous hope that there was going to be a 2021 van halen tour but nonetheless you still still have that that hope or there's going to something's going to happen it was always what's going on with van halen what's going to happen next and that's that's you know in a, a large part has to be considered over because i can't imagine there being a van halen yeah. without eddie um so that's that's really the strangest part of it um beyond the you know the sense that it's it's uh it's difficult to um you know, kind of to to realize that he obviously was was ill and obviously suffered quite a bit at the end of his life, one way or the other. The cancer, you know, had obviously spread, and he was, and um, you know, he probably didn't die the way we'd all like to die, which is sort of fall asleep and you're and you're gone. So, um, from that standpoint too, it's kind of hard to accept that it, that was the uh, you know he really got overcome by cancer. So, yeah, yeah, and I mean, obviously, you know, we saw uh, if you're on Twitter or social media or just you know the internet in general, there was a just a, a huge outpouring. I think of of sentiment from. I, I thought it was really interesting. Just a a very wide wide uh, array of musicians. You know, definitely a lot of people that operate in the sort of hard rock space and heavy metal space that are sort of descended from Eddie. But I saw you know like Questlove from the Roots. I saw John Mayer. You know what I mean? I saw a lot of a wide variety of musicians. Uh, a lot of country, really a lot of country guys. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it showed how much that he touched and, and how, you know, like I said in the intro, I mean, I think there are certain people um, where there is sort of a before and after, you know what I mean? And I think that music was one way and then music was the other. And I think in, in definitely in the realm of kind of hard rock and, and heavy metal guitar, I mean, I think that it's almost like a, you know, a BCAD kind of thing with Eddie, you know what I mean? In the same way that that probably existed with... uh I mean, Jimi Hendrix, I think, would be probably the, the guy that is, you know, I'm sure one of Eddie's, you know, inspirations and also that had a, a equal impact on electric guitar. Um, so, it, you know, I, I guess I wanted to just kind of, you obviously, you wrote the book. The book, uh, if, if people aren't familiar with it, it's really cool. I, like I said, I love it because it, it's very focused on the early days of the band. And I think above and beyond, maybe if, if you're not even that interested in Van Halen, I think it would be an interesting uh, book because it's sort of it's a it's a slice of life of the band, but it's also this kind of vanished world of this kind of mid seventies California stoner kind of burnout party culture that <laughs> you know is, is really uh you know maybe maybe I don't know if you've seen like if people have seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High it might be a little bit of a slice of that, but you know I, it's it was a fascinating world that they came out of that kind of like idea of these hugely ambitious backyard parties where you know you know fifteen hundred kids are like overturning cop cars and it was really kind of an amazing saga how how big they were before they were even signed mm -hmm. and even a big band they were they were drawing you know crowds that sign bands today would find you know to be really good crowds yeah i mean I think that was the th the thing for me as a historian i got really interested in their origin only because that was the part that wasn't really documented you know you could you could basically obviously post 1978 or you know post february 1978 their their career is pretty documented from you know the tour with black sabbath and uh, you know we could go on with that you guys and your listeners probably know about that all the way to their rise in super startup in 1984 but before that there were you would um, read about these little snippets in circus magazine or in rolling stone or 
couple of sentences here and there about wet t-shirt contests and backyard parties. And uh, I just got interested in that as a historian because I was, you know, kind of like, well, there was this whole period of time where they were clearly doing stuff where people would talk about Roth joined in 74, 73. It turns out he joined in 73, but there was, you know, Wikipedia was wrong. But regardless, you kind of knew there were years that they were doing stuff in L.A., and uh, that's how this, the research of the book started and me talking to some folks who grew up with them and kind of making some contacts out in Pasadena and then just kind of all snowball from there. But um, yeah, I mean, it was obviously uh, it turned out to be once I really got going on it, I say obviously because it was a 300 plus page book just on, you know, basically there, you know, up through 1978. There was, you know, there were they did. There was a lot of very interesting things that went on about um, Eddie's guitar techniques, their partnership with Roth. The way they marketed themselves really before they had, they didn't have any management for a long, you know, for until really till 1977. They really didn't have anything you would call quote unquote a manager. Um, and just again, as you mentioned, the, the, the backyard party culture, which I thought too was also a really fascinating kind of a Woodstock holdover. I thought that was part of what that was. People had gone to see the Woodstock movie or seen, uh, Jimmy at Berkeley or these, whatever these, these concert movies and then really had seen the sort of the whole notion of the giant festival. That was the age Watkins Glen, all these giant festivals going on. And I think that really was the inspiration in some level that was just sort of like, oh, yeah, let's the, to really enjoy rock music. It's best to pack a bunch of people into a space outdoors and play music. And and uh, the fact there were so many bands around at the time and Van Halen happened to be the best of them. But it was a thing, you know, it was that was what people wanted to do on weekends. Um, these kids who were looking to party wanted to hear in, in, in you know, San Gabriel Valley, particularly and it. I, uh, from what I understand, it did go on in other parts of the country, but nothing like this, I don't think, where it was just, that was the thing to do. It was like, let's have a party, let's hire a band, and the best hand to buy, hire at the time was Van Halen. Yeah. Um, on a musical level, uh, I wanted to kind of talk to you about just what they meant to you. And I mean, obviously, I'm assuming they're, you know, your favorite band or among your favorite bands. Um, and uh, what is it about them musically that that's that sticks with you and, and really grab you the way that it did? Because I mean, you know, obviously there, there was a lot of bands that came up in their wake, uh, which would be the, you know, the, the poisons and the, you know, the kind of eighties, uh, I guess hair metal is kind of how it's determined now. But Van Halen is really like, as you said, sort of a product of an earlier era really. And so what, 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 what distinguishes them from the things that came after or the things that came before, like the, 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 like the fog hats and Kansases of the world. You know, for me, I think, you know, like millions of other kids, it was, it was the, uh, confluence of MTV and, and it happened to be Van Halen that summer of 84, that spring. I, I saw Jump and that really, um, turned me on. I had an uncle who was really one of those really super cool uncles. I love to tell a story that he actually lived with us in 1977. So he was about, he's about, um, 10 years, well, I guess 15 years older than me. <laughs> and, uh, I remember very distinctly going into his room. He was staying in this bare bedroom and he was like living there. And, and I remember he had this, you know, stuff in the room. And I went back to my mom and I said, Mom, you know, dad smokes a pipe, but why does Uncle Tommy smoke a little pipe? You know, like that type <laughs> of thing. You know, he's like that kind of a cool uncle. And he, uh, But what was most cool about him, honestly, was that he turned me on to, um, you know, he played Mountain for me. He played um, the Rolling Stones for me. He played the Doors for me, the Almond Brothers. And it's not like I became like an eight years old, like an Almond Brothers fan, but it kind of like, you know, he was like, why are you listening to whatever, you know, listen to this as he was probably in his own headspace. And then when I came in the room and knocked the room full of smoke, but he'd be like, this is, you know, you should listen to this. This is cool. Um, you know, so that was sort of my pre, my pre Van Halen. But I, you know, I think there, I had already started to tinker a little bit with guitar. And I think a lot of it for me was beyond the whole visual spectacle of Van Halen and how catchy jump was. It was, you know, as a, as a, I think like a lot of 
teenagers as a, a budding aspiring guitar player, that was sort of obviously much more spectacular than anything Foghat was doing or the Rolling Stones was doing. There was definitely something, um, you know, for lack of a better term, something hyper-athletic the way Eddie played guitar. He played guitar like Bo Jackson played football or Michael Jordan played basketball. And sort of it was like that became the thing. And I quickly realized I was never going to play guitar like Eddie Van Halen or even become a very good guitar player. I was just sort of an okay hack around guy. I can play a little bit. Um, but, you know, that was sort of part what really engaged me, I think, because the guitar playing was so out there. You know, it was compared to what I had seen. And what I knew about um, it, it, it was obviously, as everybody knows, it was it was leaps and bounds beyond anything that was sort of around at the time. And so I think that was for me what really kind of hooked me. Um, and then I got to see the 1984 tour, and I, you know, I I don't know if that would have if I would have stayed as big of a fan if I hadn't seen the 1984 tour. I was fortunate enough to be able to go to see that just kind of through just the luck of being able to scalp a ticket to school, basically as a kid, and it was just uh, life changing to. From the beginning with the big chords of Unchained and Roth came off the drum riser and this, you know, the whole, there's actually a bootleg of the whole concert on, of uh, the 84 tour on, uh, YouTube that was about two weeks after I saw them in New Jersey. And it just, it just sort of, it, it kind of burned into your brain. This whole, this whole thing, you know, Roth cursing in an arena. I mean, it sounds silly now, but like at the time I'd never heard anybody cursing at like a public space before like yeah, that. Like, yeah. and he was like, uh, you know, let's go across the street and get drunk and all this stuff. And sort of as a teenager, you know, between the, the Eddie Van Halen guitar playing and the Roth has the whole audience in the palm of his hand. And he seems so larger than life. I mean, that was just sort of, that was it. And I think obviously I was not alone in that belief and that this was the things because they had millions of fans. But, um, you know, I just was the guy who grew up to be a writer and a historian and kind of, <laughs> did the stuff that you know is kind of wacky which is like read like newspapers from 1973 looking for van halen ads yeah no i mean it, like i said i i i really really enjoyed the book it's one of my favorite rock books i've read for a long time and uh so i'm, I'm we're glad you did the work um but you know let's let's get into the music i mean we've been mentioning his impact on guitar and like i guess you know his kind of shot heard around the world was eruption and this is like mm -hmm. you know i grew up I, I play guitar somewhat too and you know growing up just in that kind of guitar magazine thing, you know, even years later, like eruption was still this kind of landmark thing. And, yeah. and we, we play the whole thing, Jason, I think it's short and, you know, it obviously, you know, it, it would, uh, it definitely, I'm sure I'd, I'd, it would be great to hear it. Like for the first time, I wish you could take a time machine to hear it like in a, in a club, you know what I mean? In like before the records out and just, yeah, I just imagine going into a rock club and just this guy pulling this thing out and you're just like, what? Like what just happened? So it, it, let's let's play it. It's pretty impactful. Thank <laughs> you. 
That's eruption. There you have it. Um, Greg, one thing in the book, I know you talk to a lot of, you know, people that were in the LA scene and contemporaries and talk a little bit about just how his, his fellow guitarists kind of, you know, perceived this when it, when he came out and kind of been woodshedding for years and then all of a sudden just kind of unleashed this sort of incredible force on guitar. Yeah, I was, uh, very fortunate to be able to talk to guys who made it themselves, not as big as Ed did, but kind of went on to become successful rock guitarists who were around in LA, uh, during those years were kind of had their own like backyard bands or their own little club, uh, cover bands. And, uh, a couple guys really stick out in my mind. One guy is, um, Tracy G who, uh, later played with Dio. He did a couple of Dio albums in the nineties, a really good guy. And he was, um, talks about how when he first saw Van Halen in 1975, he was about 14. He got brought to a club called the Golden West Ballroom, which was a converted dance hall in uh, Norwalk, California. It's now a church, actually. But uh, he, he said it just blew his mind. I mean, it just changed, kind of changed his life. The same thing that happened to me from this band that he uh, was brought to see. And then he ended up uh, being, a, you know, kind of being a guitar player um, where he was trying to pursue rock guitar as a, as a career, so to speak. And um, always followed Ed around to try to watch him. And he talked about how when Ed brought that out, he served the first time he went to the whiskey in 77 to see Ed and the first time in a few months he had seen him and Ed had striped up the guitar and he did the eruption with the dive bombs and with the, um, the t- finger tapping. Cause Ed didn't really de- debut that finger tapping in that full on blown method really until the summer of 77. They record the album late summer, early fall, you know, so it was sort of this, uh, confluence of, Techniques, and that's one of the other people I talked to is a guy named Carl Carl Hassis, who was the guitarist in Dread Zeppelin. Uh, if you remember when they used to do Heartbreaker and stuff like that, Carl was the guy who did all the shred solos in, in the um, in Dread Zeppelin. He was around too, and he just said that you know all that stuff with the Strat and the tapping, Ed kind of all put the pieces together in '77 and kind of got documented. But um, getting back to Tracy, Tracy talked about how it was like being in a cross country race. And you're running and you're starting to catch up to the leader. You're starting to put some space between your marathon. You're starting to put some space, you know, some tighten up the space between you two. And every time he said you thought you were getting close, you're like, okay, I'm like, I'm like half a mile behind or whatever it is. He's like, you're getting closer. <laughs> he said, Ed would come up with something new and just zoom ahead. He said it never, it never failed. He said like the Stratocaster with the, with the dive bombs. He said when he really before he started tapping, he was doing that. And he said what blew his mind was that. When you would, as a guitar player, when you would do that before a Floyd Rose, which had the locking mechanism on the top of the neck and the fine tuners, the guitars would go out of tune. If you really, really wailed on them, like Jimi Hendrix would do, they would always go out of tune. And when Ed had figured it out basically how to do this to set it up where it was somewhat balanced and he could do it and he would keep playing. And Tracy said, I was like, how is that? That's not even possible. How is he doing that? That's not, that's not even. Uh, you know, scientifically possible, like Tracy was saying to me. And then, of course, the tapping and the harmonics and the the whole, the whole thing about Ed Van Halen. Um, the other thing I was going to add, if uh, you guys don't mind, is to talk about now when I hear this eruption, you know, I have Ted Templeman's voice in my mind from doing the books with him. So, you know, I hear, I, I hear him telling me about how he was walking past the studio, Studio Two, I think, um, and they were getting ready to cut the last songs for the record. The last song of the record, I think, was going to be Jamie's Crying. That was the last one they were going to record. And he heard this thing, this solo thing, and he walked in the studio to said, Ed, like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, this is just something I do live at the whiskey. Or just, just my live thing. I'm just practicing it for tonight. And he's like, well, what do you mean? You just, this is your solo, right? You do it live. He goes, yeah, but it's just, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's just, just my thing. The guys go get beers and I, I play or whatever, you know? And he was like, 
no, we're going to put it on the album. He's like, I, I, we're, we're putting it on the album. And he walked back into the control room and Don Landy was in there and he said, Don, roll tape. And Don said, it, I already am. Because Don had seen Ted getting super animated with Eddie and they cut it. And that recording, there were only two takes of Eruption done. Wow. The only edit that was done with the take that's on the album is that there was a little bit of feedback in the quiet part in the middle. There was like a kind of a the squeal of the guitar and they edited that, you know, one second of sound out. The rest thing is just one, one complete take of Eddie Van Halen playing it. Um, and it's just, yeah, incredible, right? It's like, how do you ever top that, that type of solo? Um, knowing that it was done with one take and was something that was so revolutionary compared to what came before with electric guitar solos. It just rewrote all the rules. And so, yeah, it was really great to have those guys talking about that stuff, uh, for them as guitar players, kind of explaining like what it was like for them, you know, like, Mark Kendall of Great White would talk about like, you know, I was playing Robin Trower solos and I thought I was pretty good. <laughs> I would see Eddie Van Halen and I would be like, I got a long way to go. You know, yeah. I, you know I just I just figured out how to play this bad company solo. And he'd be like, then I'd see Ed and I would just be like, well, I'm going to be, uh, you know, after it for forever, you know, trying to catch up, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it still sounds, you know, pretty alien even today, which is kind of impressive. Um, let's let's play another track, which, you know, Re-listening to Van Halen one uh, a lot, you know, this last week or so, it's like, boy, this album is tight. You know, this is all hits, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, probably the the a lot of the repertoire that they they honed in the clubs all those years. But man, it starts off. I mean, you know, Eruption is actually the second song. We're gonna play the first song, Running with the Devil. So it's a hell of a way to kick off an album, man. They 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 came out with their best foot forward for sure. One thing that was interesting listening to this album again after I'd read your book, um, which I mean, I'd heard it before, but I never really noticed, is that you you talk a, a little bit about them recording this with Ted Templeman and how much this is like. I mean, it's obviously a big budget record, but this is kind of recorded like a punk record. I mean, there's not a lot of overdubs. Mm -hmm. There's not like most of these bands of this ilk would probably overdub like a rhythm guitar part under the solo. Usually, it's just bass under the solo, and it, there's a ton of space on the track and like. As much as they sort of represented, obviously, the opposite of punk in some ways, like, it's kind of a raw record, you know what I mean? And, and, and not overly fussed over. You know, um, when Ted and I talked about this, one of the things that really, I think, didn't really 
sink in for me and I didn't really understand until I really was at the end of the Templeman book with him, doing the biography with him, was how much his frame of reference for Van Halen was bebop for Eddie. That he said that Eddie was like a bebop jazz player who would play out, you know, basically play outside of things. Probably not explain that 100% right, but he would say, look, there's no chords underneath. And so you have great freedom to play. And so that's what he wanted to do with the Van Halen record was use some rhythm guitar. There's some rhythm guitar in this track, obviously, but like basically give Eddie the place, space to just blow, you know, just to blow his stuff and to make Ed the showcase of the record. And, you know, I think, you know, Ted's perception of that maybe doesn't give enough, maybe he's not remembering 100% how much, you know, he gave a lot of space to Roth to do to do his thing. This whole song is really like a showcase for Roth, I think, in a lot of ways, as much as it's a showcase for Ed. But, you know, kind of hear Ted talk about why he didn't want to, like, pile on the rhythm guitars or these other instruments. You know, look, this is the guy who did the Doobie Brothers records where there's tons of tracks of percussion and horn section and, you know, three sometimes three guitar parts. You know, the fact yeah. that he did it in a very stripped-down way was based on really more and more I understand it is the way that Ted saw him as the, the, the um, inheritor of that bebop tradition which again i would never have heard i think most of us who are in a bebop into bebop music wouldn't have heard that but that's the way ted as a kid who grew up on jazz heard it yeah no i mean it it it, it was one of those things like i until i read your book i i just accepted it like well this is what the song sounds like you know what i mean you don't really think about that it could be different than what it is but i the more i i um i listened to it with that in mind it, it was kind of striking and i think it's kind of one of the things that maybe makes it seem less dated than other things yeah um, of that era because it is just a very, um, I mean, it's kind of like a, a, a club band just knocking it out. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, obviously it's better production values and, and everything like that. But, um, let's, let's play another one. And this boy, this one might be my favorite Van Halen song. Uh, but ain't talking about love. I think this is, you know, I mean, this is definitely one of the, the, for anyone, I would have to say the top one, two, three, or somewhere in there. For this sure. is a, a, a real anthem. And, this is this is another one I really like that you know you can you can tell that these songs were really played live a lot before they were maybe it was I don't know did they write this before the album or is this written later It was written in the summer of 77 so it was actually one of the oh, last okay. songs they would have written before they went to the Sunset Sound Oh wow okay cuz I just some of the things like the hey hey hey's at the end and stuff just seem like such a crowd participation thing but maybe they, they just had that natural instinct for that I, And I think that was actually a, a a reaction to punk. I actually think this song, and I, yeah, Roth has even talked about it, and, and, and Eddie has talked about how, you know, they, the, the song started out as a gag because the idea was, well, punk bands do these three chord songs. We're going to do a two chord song. And Eddie just started joking around with this A minor to G thing over and over and over again to do a, you know, a two chord song. Um, and I definitely think that was, you know, the sort of, uh, hey, hey, hey was, was in my estimation, probably influenced by that, that, um, punk rock sentiment or some way. I mean, in other words, they were kind of mocking punk rock, but they were also inspired by it, which they think like atomic punk, um, the lyric and everything. It's sort of, they were, Van Halen played with a lot of band, the motels, like new wave um, slash punk bands that were uh, around in LA at the time who really most of them never went anywhere. And Van Halen got huge, but this was, you know, kind of the thing where I've heard um, people talk about, you know, Eddie went to see Devo. Like, it doesn't mean like he liked Devo necessarily, but he was like there, like going, this is trip, I'm tripping out on Devo, you know, in like 1977. So they were definitely exposed to the, the whole, um, punk ethos and the, the, the way that punk music was so aggressive and raw. 
Yeah, and this song actually, and and punk in some ways kind of paid it back. With this song was um, uh, the Minutemen, uh, right? Famously, the who are to me one of the like the great all time Southern California punk and post punk bands. But they famously covered the "Ain't Talking About Love" on their on their classic album "Double Nickels on the Dime." So, and I, I do I do agree too. But because there's there's one thing that I that struck me like when I was listening to this again kind of to your point is that whether they felt they were really, I don't think they obviously felt they were sort of in opposition to some of that stuff, but this album is, it doesn't have a lot of the fat, let's say of kind of mid to late seventies, hard rock right. records, you know, like the songs are short, they're hooky. They're generally un, like up three and a half, four minutes. You know what I mean? And they're, they're not overly fussy. And even, you know, even for as great as Eddie is like his solos are great, but they're not extended like Jimmy page, you know, days and confused, like, Right, and the songs don't like have all these minutes. like these these sections, right? There's not like a B part to a B part. There's like that. There wasn't their songwriting style. It was very very stripped down. Yeah, let's hear Dean talking about love because this is just a just a killer rock song in every respect. <laughs> doing the Templeman biography with Ted, he talked to me a lot about when he saw this lyric, a, you know, a lot of his, he had doubts about, I think it's been pretty well documented at this point, that he had some doubts about Dave as a singer, that he just didn't know if he was going to be able to pull pull his weight in the studio because he was sort of an unorthodox singer and didn't really have one of those classic, you know, Ian Gillen, Sammy Hagar, whatever, we go through these guys who are sort of the more classic 70s rock singers. And uh, one of the things that Ted talked to me about it was he read this lyric that Roth had written, and he was like, "Damn, like this is like intense stuff." You know, you got to bleed for it and bend to the edge. He just really, really was impressed by Roth's writing. That she said this guy, you know, might come off as a clown to some people who don't know how smart he is. Like it's 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 really amazing the stuff that he's putting on uh, putting on paper and singing Atomic Punk, these other songs that. Ted read the lyrics to and he said this guy is the right guy in other words Ted got sold on on Roth more so about his whole persona as a a guy who had the presence to be able to front Van Halen that he worked well with Ed and that he the ability to write this this stuff that really opened Ted's eyes to Roth's intellect and so that was this song was really as Ted said one of the things that really helped him do a 180 on Roth going like I don't know I don't know if this is going to work. To okay, there might be some issues here with the vocals. We're going to, work, I, you know, I can coach him through it. This is that's what I do. I know how to work with vocalists. I'll coach him through it. And he did a complete 180 on Roth and became one of the biggest Roth, you know, advocates for Dave. He's like, this is the right guy. And later yeah. in the, in the book, soon after that, he you know says, if I kicked Dave out of Van Halen or or tried to, which he probably wouldn't have been able to, if he tried to like make that move, because um, I think the guys would have stuck with Dave no matter what. I think Ted knew that that uh, he would have made the biggest mistake in rock history because he basically believes without Dave, you never would have had 
it never would have happened without Dave, basically. It never would have been this big. If you put Sammy in there in 77, it never would have been the same thing. You know, they might have been like, you know, like Ted says, they're good musicians. They may have been, you know, made an impact, but it wouldn't be this like world-changing impact like they had as a band without Dave. Yeah, I mean, I, I, they probably would have like opened for Deep Purple or something like that. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's about it, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, we should we should kind of get into this because this really... Um, oh, that's a great ending. <laughs> um, but uh, so, you know, and, and you get into this, obviously, it's, it's a, one of the really driving narratives of the entire band's existence. Uh, I was really surprised uh, because, I, I mean, I knew there was this sort of love-hate kind of tension between the Van Halen brothers and David Lee Roth for a long time that obviously, which we will get into the next album, 1984, and that will come more to the fore. But, you know, that's a very well-known part of, you know, Van Halen kind of legacy is they had that sort of, you know, certain bands are like that, like Oasis is very much known for their kind of feuding as well. Um, I was really surprised, though, how early all these tensions existed, like almost prior to the the band, him even being in the band, you know, it was almost like you get the sense that Eddie kind of had this weird idea that he was the right guy and, and wouldn't let it go. But I don't know. I got the sense Alex kind of more wanted to just like beat him up <laughs> <laughs> the whole time. Um, but yeah, so just talk a little bit about that dynamic because Roth is like this ultimate kind of, I was trying to describe, uh, I was texting with Jason. I said, like, you almost got to think of, like, David Lee Roth is, like, halfway between, like, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin and, like, you know, Henny Youngman or Bob Hope or something. Like, he's almost this kind of, like, Catskills comedian slash, oh, definitely. you know, rock I, guy. I definitely. I definitely think, like, he would have, like, in another era, he would have been, like, a Borscht Belt, like, superstar. It would have been, like, and, you know, he would have done, done his thing on the, right, the Catskills or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Roth is... There was always this probably half admiration, half just sort of shake your head from the brothers with Dave. I think they knew that Roth was good at what he did. But I also think they, from the get-go, realized what he was good at they needed, but they didn't necessarily respect it. I'm not saying they didn't respect Roth as a contributor to the band. I mean, I think they knew he wrote the lyrics and stuff like that. But those... You know, those guys in particular, I mean, think about Alex Van Halen. Alex Van Halen, I was just talking to someone about this on Twitter the other day, to the best of my knowledge, has never played live on stage without his brother, with anybody else. I mean, he's I I, I have, have racked my brain. Ed did stuff with, you know, Michael Jackson. We've got to go to, Ed, you know, would show to like jam with the Pretenders in 82. He would do these things where he'd show up and play. To the best of my knowledge, Alex never played on stage with anyone but his brother. Sammy played guitar on stage, I understand, but it was always, he only performed with Van Halen. You know, and I think that um, those guys were so musically welded together, Ed and Al, and they saw themselves as musicians. I mean, that was the thing. They weren't, you know, yeah, they put on the show, the flaming gong and the whatever, stand up and you drink the beer and you, you're the rock star or whatever. But I think at the very basis, they saw themselves as guys who were in it because they loved music and they were technical about the way they made music. And I think they saw Roth as this guy who was sort of a necessary evil. Again, wrote good lyrics. I know that they knew that he he finished off Ed's songs. I mean, he definitely did. He was a, he was an important component to that. You know, and I think that's where when they split in 85, that's where you could see those fault lines that were there split pretty easily because 
basically Roth just took all of the song and dance and shtick stuff with the, you know, going on David Letterman and all this stuff to the point where the brothers felt, I believe that they, again, I don't know this from them directly, but I believe that they probably felt that this guy is using us as a springboard to go do his own thing. He's no longer just sort of operating within the confines of Van Halen. He's using us to be able to go beyond all of this and, um, you know, make it into like a, you know, an entertainment thing, which in some ways demeaning the band and the other thing. I think that was the other thing too. I honestly do think that Eddie and Alex were like a little bit embarrassed and it, and it'll give me sound silly, maybe in retrospect, but I think, think they were a little bit embarrassed that Dave did what he did with Templeman with the, the EP and all that stuff. And they probably thought it was silly now. Oh, like doing like just a jiggle. Yeah. Like I think they things. probably thought it was silly. Right. I mean, I think as a fan, I appreciate it. And I think a lot of people appreciate it. And I think, I understand what their goal was, um, Ted and Dave's goal was and all that stuff. And Ted has been very forthright with me. And I think in the book to say that if he knew that this was going to basically cause worse relations, he never would have agreed to do it. He just thought it was going to be like a thing to just basically, you know, give actually to give Van Halen some breathing room. He wanted to get, you know, they weren't getting along. And he thought, okay, if Dave's EP comes out, everyone can kind of have their own, do their own thing. Dave could go do his thing. Ed can do whatever he wants and they can sort of have some space to kind of, be apart from each other and it, that all backfired, obviously, no doubt about it. But I mean, you know, I think that was the thing is that there was always this, you know, um, you know, it's, it's like some Roth has famously said, you know, when did the, when did the tension start? And he was like, <laughs> when did, you know, when, when wasn't there tension? It was like, he's like from the first time. And which is really, I think from the beginning, <laughs> they were always like a little bit like, you know, they had their, their doubts about Dave as a singer and they just were like, yeah. I don't know. And their friends, as I documented Van Halen Rising, a lot of their friends are going like, you know, I don't know about that. You're like ruining, you know, talking about how like the Jeff Spicoli's of the neighborhood are basically going, you guys have ruined your band by letting this guy in your group. I mean, really, that's what they would. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, was, it was really, it was striking to me to just like, you know, Roth, like usually people kind of become rock stars and start acting a certain way. You know what I mean? After, after success kind of goes to their heads. Like it really almost sounds like the opposite. Like it sounds like he was just walking around, not even in a band, like 16 and just acting like he was a rock star just like walking around his high school and stuff. And, you know, like really before he'd even done anything, like he just had certain people must just have that, that innate showmanship and, oh, and confidence. For sure. For sure. I mean, it's like, you know, guys, I did the, I did the Van Halen rising book and I interviewed some guys that he went to middle school and high school with. And it was great. Cause they were actually like his sidekicks in high school. And, uh, you know, they, one of the guys told me this very famous story now famous to me in my mind is that they went around the table in like seventh grade. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And one guy's like, I want to be an astronaut. You know, I want to be a, you know, a, a police officer. And Dave was like, I want to be a rock star. And the guy told me they all laughed. You know, they all laughed. You're not going to be a rock singer. And this is like 1969, probably. Well, 68, probably middle school. So it's like the Beatles are big. The doors, you're not going to be, a, you're not going to be Jim Morrison. You know, who are you kidding? You know? And well, guy was like, well, lo and behold, 10 years later, he did it. You know, he was really, yeah. he, you know, he lived it. And so, um, then that was part of it. I mean, that was that Roth was, was all in. Um, one more le- le- quick thing that somebody told me, which I thought was so insightful when I did the book was that somebody said to me, he said, you know, like when you have like a, you know, like you're doing like a, um, something where you're performing like, uh, or like you said, like a band in the backyard or you're like, doing skateboarding or something and like there's always the guy who like overdoes it who like comes out with all this gear on if he's skateboarding you're like dude we're we're skating on a half pipe in the driveway and he's like got all this this stuff on like you know whatever he's got it like over the top he said that's way dave was it was like he was all in from the beginning like you know what i mean it was just it always seemed like overkill but he was totally committed 
to his art way before it seemed reasonable to act like that. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, that was one of the great parts about the book. Um, I, I want to play another song because, you know, you talk about Roth, um, the songwriter and the lyricist. Sure. And I think that sometimes, you know, his outsized persona and his showmanship and his, you know, he's just a lot, right? And I think sometimes that might overshadow the fact that he really was, in his own way, a, a very good lyricist. And I think that he had a lot of, there was, there's a lot of moments on Van Halen records sometimes that are a little more like empathetic. I think oh, right. then, then people right. give them, and I want to play right. Jamie's crying, which I Absolutely. think, Great one. you know, it, this kind of brings, I think the pop element of the band that, um, I think really sets them apart from like a lot of these seventies bands that they kind of came out of is they, they, you know, sometimes they kind of wrote these almost like beach boys, Beatles esque kind of pop songs within the context of heavy metal. Certainly you would never hear like a band like, you know, black Sabbath or, or deep purple or, or rush or any, you know, well, rush kind of got popular, but, um, you know, Jamie's crying, I think is a great example of maybe some of that pop sensibility. And I know Roth was a big fan of R and B music and Motown and James Brown and things like that. And this has kind of a funky kind of backbeat to the point that it was sampled, uh, by Tone Loke for, uh, was that, what song was Tone Loke? <laughs> was that funky cold Medina? Uh, wild thing. Yeah. Wild thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wild thing. Um, but let's, let's do Jamie's crying. Cause I mean, I think this is kind of a sweet song in, in its own, in its own, you know, it has, is a little more empathy for a female character than, uh, which lots of times Van Halen does not have. Um, so I think it's kind of a nice example of what Roth brings to the table. have really almost like kind of almost classic like la kind of wrecking crew just pop songwriting but you know done by a, a, a three-piece heavy metal band well and this is another i think one of the best examples of what great songwriters these guys were meaning ed and dave together because this song wasn't finished so when they came in the studio they had basically the outlines of the song but there were no lyrics and the melody wasn't finished they had the parts and uh, they finished it in the studio and uh, this is where what Ted would point to the genius of Roth as a lyricist um, because when he read the lyric he's like I don't know and then he sort of really understood he was like oh it's like one of these like 60s Motown you know why does love have to hurt so bad why does love have to be so sad you know it's one of these like happy sounding things that's like sad right or this real, real um, like a lot of those Motown songs like you know uh, where have our love where have our love gone 
yeah, it's happy yeah. sounding, but it's like the lyric is like so like you want to cry if you read the lyrics. And so he said, "This is the genius of Roth. That Roth had all this song song craft that he was able to bring to the table." It's like you know, you know, Ted would have said something like, "A normal band would have written some some song about a you know about a getting drunk on Friday night and looking for girls or something." And he's like, "It'd be forgettable, you know." But like Dave did this, wrote this lyric about this girl who's broken up about this guy who um, basically you know didn't tell her the truth, you know, and she's, like, sad and stuff. And he, he said it was just another example of how Dave, on the spot, really wrote this, they wrote the lyrics in the studio. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, as I say, there's really not any filler, I would say, in Van Halen 1. It's one of those albums that's, you know, kind of like Led Zeppelin 1 or something, where kind of front to back, it's all it's all quality. But this is was, again, one of the things that helped Ted really lock in on that Dave is extremely gifted in his own way. You know, he's getting, like, he's not... You know, maybe like a world-changing lyricist or something. Like Eddie is a world-changing guitarist, but he was a guy who was who was much more talented in a lot of ways than many would give him credit for because of his image. You know, and so this was yeah, this was a song written in the studio. One of the last, in fact, this was the last song they cut. Eruption, if I remember correctly. Then they did Jamie's crying because they finished wow. the lyrics and they were done. That's crazy! Wow, yeah, because now it's it's such an iconic one of theirs that it's it's always fun. I love those stories where it's like. The biggest song in an album was just like this. Uh, let's just let's cut one more. This is kind of a toss off thing, and then it well, ends up being like the the hit, you know. And if you guys run the run the run the song again from the beginning, I'll tell you something else which is interesting, which I don't have any direct proof for, but I think it's probably accurate if you listen to it. So before they did this, they wrote this song. They had done the demo with Gene Simmons, and Gene had written a song called Christine Sixteen. So I always felt like this may have been an outgrowth of that jam with okay. them, with, the, with like basically that ba bump, ba bump, ba bump, ba bump. Just kind of the, the, the feel of the song was kind of a, an outgrowth of it. And again, I'm not saying that those guys like stole Gene's song or anything or stole his riff, but it was basically like I could imagine they played that song with Gene, and it sort of it, it, it evolved into this. This that was wow, always my cool. thinking because it's like they they did the demo with Gene in April of '77. And then they went and did, were in Sunset Sound August, September of 77. So it was, you know, they could have kicked the idea around. But I just, you know, I always kind of can hear something there that seems reminiscent that I always thought, wonder if that was sort of the, the genesis of that as the, the beginning idea of the feel for the song. That's interesting. Um, I got a couple more I want to play. Jason, the next one is another one that um, is kind of from the more pop side of the band. And also uh, kind of, I want to talk about it because there's another member of the band we haven't really touched on yet. This Feel Your Love Tonight. Um, and I think, you know, we haven't really, we've mentioned Michael Anthony, the bass player, um, who I think, you know, I mean, people sometimes make jokes about Michael Anthony, but I think he's actually a great bass player. He's got a lot of feel and particularly, um, Greg, and I know you, you talk about this in the book sometimes, uh, Michael Anthony is a backup vocalist, probably had as much of an impact as Roth mm -hmm. had mm -hmm. for this band and the mm -hmm. harmonies and, you know, really harking back to that almost like, you know, we talk about California with which they're an iconic California band, but almost kind of beach boys exactly. um, with these, these awesome harmony vocals, which, you know, I mean, like say a band like the Beatles had great harmony vocals at times, but that really wasn't done in, in heavy metal and, and no. hard rock circles at all. And I think feel your, uh, so talk a little bit about that before we get into feel your love tonight, which is a kind of a showcase for that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I talked to Ted about this, you know, and, and Roth has talked about this too, as well, 
that, you know, Roth will Roth would basically say that I wanted, you know, the feel of Van Halen is driving down the Sunset Strip with a case of beer on the backseat with your girl, with a bunch of girls driving down with playing music, you know, that's sort of like California dream Friday night out. Um, and, you know, sort of the, the, maybe the earlier analog to that would have been like the sixties, like the beach boy, the girls on the beach with the guys with the surfboard. And Ted talked about when he heard Mike's voice and the harmonies of Ed and Ed and Mike, he said, it really reminded me of the beach boys, like those harmonies. And he said, actually, what I thought was, you know, obviously they weren't going to be as good as the beach boy harmonies, but it, was like, it gave a youthful California feel. Like he just felt like subliminally when you did that, it sort of like harkened back to that type of music. And he really wanted to amplify that on the record to make sure that was front and center with the rest of the, of the music. The other thing he always talked about, which I thought was really interesting, he talked about how Mike's voice was so powerful that actually a lot of times in those early records, Ted would double Ed's part. So Ted and Ed would sing the same part of the harmony together and that would be mixed in. So a lot of these, like Feel Your Love Tonight for sure, Ted is Ted is singing. You can't hear him or you distinguish him, but he's in there singing because Ted was a vocalist himself from Harper's Bazaar. And so, um, you know, there was this, this uh, you know, participation by the producer to kind of get that harmony just right where he felt it would really kind of, again, give it that he said that he wanted it to be heavy metal that would make you smile. That was really Ted's approach. He's like, you know, there's always so serious and sort of like, you know, like he like, you know, he talked about Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and he's like, yeah, well, whatever. The stuff has sold a lot of records and Warner Brothers and it was cool and everything. Kids loved it. But he's like, I wanted it to be an upbeat, fun thing. Like these guys could play like heavy metal guys and scream like heavy metal guys, but I want it to be pop. I want it to be something that would make girls smile and make guys smile and have a good time when they listen to it rather than just sort of being like, yeah, let's, you know, let's get all, you know, intense and, and angry when you listen to this music yeah let's hear the feel you love tonight because this is real kind of a, a showcase for those harmonies Even that, like, that's Beatles right there. That, yeah, that, woo, that's a Beatles thing, right? But yeah, I mean, I think in that way, you know, he kind of, which I think we'll make, I wanted to play maybe one more off this and then we'll move on to 1984, but you know, you, you start to see where they're kind of dragging hard rock kind of out of the 70s, even though yes. like, this still is the 70s, but like into what would become. Yes the 80s you know and the, and the kind of the bigness of just 80s music just has that certain big pop right like in in, in all genres really but this part Yeah, and then 
one more I wanted to play just because, uh, I mean, I think this is a really well-crafted album. And I think the last song to me is just kind of what I imagine. And, and Greg, you know, you can jump in here too and correct me if I'm wrong. But this On Fire to me just kind of feels like an, a remnant of like, this was just a kick-ass bar band. You know what I mean? That this is just like them just going off. You know what I mean? And, for a and this is a relatively people. old song. This probably dates to like 1975 or so. This was a song they had had for a couple of years. And it actually involved, you know, kind of became more compact. But, oh, yeah. I mean, even the other thing to think about, too, before we listen to it, I urge people to listen to the interplay between, you know, I'm a musician, but I'm not really a very good musician. But anyone who has played in a band knows that they sort of, if you're really well rehearsed, you can do this interplay between the drums and the guitar. You have basically little little um, sync, uh, synced up little parts. You can really hear how tight Ed and Al are in this thing. It's just not like some guy like just hitting the crash cymbal. Like, you know, he's like, you know, they have all these like little stops and starts and parts that are really, really locked, locked in. But yeah, what a killer song. Harmonics there. I mean, in the rhythm guitar playing, it's just, I mean, it's just like jaw dropping. You know, if you know, you people can, anyone can solo the, get those solo tracks on YouTube where you can hear just the guitar from the from uh, the Guitar Hero game, and I think this is one of the songs that's out there, and you just are just, it's just incredible. All these little parts. Yeah, this, like, this would have been a tough act to follow. And this was their opening song on the 78 tour. This is what they opened with. <laughs> this isn't even, this isn't yeah. even like, by far their best song. It's like probably like the 6th or 8th or 10th best song on the record, right? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah no, I, that, I, I, like I said, I encourage everyone to read the... Uh, wow, yeah, this is going in. Uh, everyone to read the book, but, uh, you know, the, the, the tour, the 78 Black Sabbath tour, it's like, I, 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 I'd always heard that they kind of upstaged Sabbath, but man, like, in that book, Ozzy just sounded almost despondent by how much he felt Van Halen was upstaging them and how he just kind of felt it illustrated to him that maybe it was time to, you know, hang it up, which he ultimately did very quickly after that. Yeah, I think, you know, something I didn't emphasize enough in the book, which I think you guys will appreciate when you hear it, is that so Sabbath and Van Halen were on the same record label. And sometimes tours don't always work like that. Again, I don't know how this actually works in the record industry, but it's occasionally you'll have tours where guys are from you know, different labels. Um, you know, And so I, I really think that Sabbath gave Van Halen more leeway than they would have, in part maybe because their management was getting pressure from the record company to basically let, let Van Halen play longer. Like Van Halen played almost 45 minutes, 50 minutes by the end of the tour. They were playing a long time. You know, and they let them do things like Alex could light his drumsticks on fire, and they let Eddie do the whole eruption solo. And so, you know, there's that famous, obviously, the hazing that comes from being an open and act, where some bands are like, uh, no, you're not doing that, you're not doing that, you're not doing that, and we might cut your power. You know, I think that, you know, maybe it's to the credit of those guys. I don't know how kind of locked in Tony and Ozzy were at the time and kind of focused in on the stuff, but maybe they just felt they wanted to give Van Halen a chance. But they, they really gave Van Halen space to really blow them off the stage if that makes sense like they gave you know they gave them like 
all the ammunition to do it. Um, the strobe lights with the drum solo, a lot of like the stuff. And I think probably that had to do with like Warner Brothers was like, we're pouring a crap load of money into this tour. Uh, yeah. guess what? We're going to give Van Halen a nice, uh, stage, so to speak, to, to basically make their case to the fans that they're a good band. And so I think that was one of the things that definitely factored into it. But the other thing, of course, is everybody I think knows is that Sabbath is really had reached the end of the run anyway. Those guys were, were all suffering from one level of addiction to another, all four of them. And yeah. it was a, uh, you know, it just was impossible to follow. I mean, I think the thing is like one of the people I interviewed for the book talked about how even at Anaheim Stadium, you know, you have like, it was like Boston and Sammy Hagar. It was all these big, you know, it was like August 78, the kind of the biggest rock bands were there and Van Halen was like second on the bill or start. And then they pulled off this skydiving stunt where they, you know, posed as they were, it wasn't really them, but it was guys in like with wigs on and helmets and like Van Halen parachutes, parachutes that had like Van Halen emblazoned on them. And like Van Halen's coming in the stadium. And like one of the guys I interviewed <laughs> for the book was like, these guys think of everything. Like they just think of everything to be able to out, you know, whether they go on stage and they absolutely kick your ass or they're basically blowing people away by fooling everyone to thinking they're the only band to parachute into the stadium. Sabbath didn't, you know, Ozzy's <laughs> not getting in a parachute. No. I mean, they really, they really wanted it. And I think that's the thing is that they really knew how to, um, to make what I would call the most of their opportunities. I think that was the really cool thing about Van Halen was that they, you know, they, they went for the throat. I mean, they really, really did. And they, um, didn't make any apologies for it. You know, Tony and, uh, uh Ed wanted to be very good friends, but I, you know, if you read Tony's book, Tony's biography, there's a definitely kind of an edge to it. Like, you know, Van Halen didn't really blow us off the stage and kind of like, uh, you could see that he still probably was something he still feels a little bit of like, um, I don't know, like, you know, we, we should have won that game, so to speak, like losing the Super Bowl, but you should have played better, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Ozzy too, obviously, you know, he goes through sort of this period of addiction and kind of being a hermit, but then he basically kind of goes out, goes to LA and says like, I need my own Eddie Van Halen. And, and right. basically found that in, in, in the late Randy Rhodes who, you know, uh, died in a tragic plane accident you know but those early ozzy solo albums which are great you know are, are clearly like i mean he was paying attention on this tour i think right you know, because those sort of if you wanted to mix old black sabbath with van halen the first you know the randy rhodes era ozzy records are really doing that to a large degree i think that's a really great observation that i maybe haven't thought about enough but that's absolutely true i mean he went to la to find a guitar player or he was in la and looked for a guitar player in la i mean he didn't go to like england look for a guitar player he looked for one in la he found a great one. Yeah. So obviously Van Halen won. Uh, you know, we could pretty much play the whole album. It's it, as you said, it's there. There are no dud tracks. I mean, God, like Little Dreamer. I love Little Dreamer. I mean, like it, it's just it's it's one of those classic debut albums where just it's all killer, no filler. Um, and now we're going to kind of we're going to bookend it. We should shout out Sammy Hagar. Obviously, you know, the, the Van Hagar era is was almost in some ways, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but was probably even more commercially successful in some ways than the, the Roth era. Um, and they did obviously a lot of great, you know, great, you know, material like Dreams and, and When It's right. Love and Right On or uh, Right Now, um, which was sort of an iconic song in its own right. Um, for me, it never really clicked in the same way that the the raw stuff does because I think there's just sort of a there's a certain humor and a kind of winking, kind of ironic quality to David Lee Roth, where right. he's kind of like embodying this rock star, but also kind of like taking the piss out of it to a certain degree and kind of you know 
like he he's in on the joke. You know what I mean? Is always the sense I get from David. Um, where Sammy is just you know seems like a, he's like as you said he's a classic '70s rock dude, right? He just you know seems like a good guy, and they did some stuff. So we're gonna go to the end of the Roth era now, which is 1984. Um. And, you know, so it's kind of interesting. They've gone through, obviously, their ups and downs. Um, I think, you know, some albums were really good. I'm a big fan of uh, Fair Warning, which is probably sort of the the weirdest and darkest Van Halen album, but I love that that album. Women and Children First, Diver Down, uh, which I think is right before this was sort of maybe, that almost feels like they were maybe running out of gas for the first right. time. Um so talk a little bit about, you know, them going to this era. And obviously, you know, at the beginning of the show, we mentioned we did a, a tribute show to Kraftwerk. Um, in the interim, Eddie has really actually embraced synthesizers for, you know, despite being like the world's preeminent guitar player. Um, he obviously had a background, which you talk about in Van Halen Rising with uh, piano lessons and sure. classical music. His dad was a musician. Um, so talk a little bit about what's kind of happened both in the band and musically, because 1984, I think, is equally a strong album as Van Halen 1. It's a different record in certain ways, but, you know, it still has that kind of Van Halen feel to it. And I think this is what took them, perhaps, this is sort of actually the time when I was sort of becoming conscious of having, knowing about music that wasn't just what my parents played. Right. And, and, you know, they, they kind of put them in that, you know, Madonna and Prince and Bruce Springsteen and Tina Turner and, you know, those type of big pop acts. Um, so talk a little bit about, you know, where they are at this point in their career and, and some of, even the musical changes that Eddie has kind of brought about by becoming interested in. I know like the Yamaha DX7 and some mm-hmm. other synthesizers. Well, you know, 1984, as everybody knows, was like the game changer for Van Halen. I mean, it made them a household name. They were, you know, obviously a very successful rock band before sold millions of records and were obviously a, a staple on the the tours, uh, summer tours for people and stuff like that. But, you know, the, the thing that obviously everyone remembers about 1984 is Jump. I mean, I think that's probably the first thing people remember. And there's Hopper Teacher in Panama. But, you know, one of the things that I really came to appreciate the more time I spent sort of actually looking at the history of Van Halen more closely is that, you know, Ed had been doing keyboards from one extent to another on all the records up through 1984. Now, most people know about Cradle of Rock, where he played the Wurlitzer electric piano, which they put through the Marshall stack, and he played that on that. It's kind of subdued, but you can hear it if you listen in headphones on the verses of Cradle of Rock. You know, then they go into Fair Warning, and interestingly enough, there's the... Um, and the stuff at the end of Fair Warning, Sunday afternoon in the park, um, where there's a keyboard, um, d- uh, kind of like almost like a, I forget what it's, it's um, who, who makes the, I can't believe I can't, Electro Harmonix makes this kind of chintzy, almost kid-like keyboard that Ed played. But also, since the, some of the multi-tracks have leaked, there actually is a little bit of um, very, very subdued keyboards on So This Is Love. Like you can actually, there's actually a track of keyboards. And I'm like, oh, he played keyboards on So This Is Love too. And you can hear, you know, you can hear uh, that in the multi-tracks. Then you go on to Diver Down. Not only is it Dancing in the Street, where Ed played the keyboard on that, but he also, there was a mix of Secrets, which is an album track from the first side of, of uh, Diver Down, where Ed plays keyboards as well. Um, parts of it is on YouTube. There was a, a mono and a stereo mix done for radio that had a more, again, I assume this was on Ed's behalf, they mixed the keyboards up. It's not super pronounced, but you can hear keyboards. You know, and so when you get to get to jump in 1984, you sort of realize this guy's been wanting to do this for a long time. And I think both Templeman and 
Roth, and probably Alex too. I think Alex to some extent too were really wanting to put the brakes on that because they really felt the identity of the band was based around being a rock guitar driven band. And I think eventually by 1983, Alex kind of really started to side with his brother, started to hear how great Jump was. The the song idea for Jump, which was a kicking around in 1982 and Dave and Ted both kind of, and I presume Alex as well, were kind of like, nah, we shouldn't, this isn't for us. We shouldn't do this. You know, and then that sort of became this, uh, one of the real uh, friction points between Ted, Dave, and Ed was about this song. Uh, Ted talks about it in his autobiography that, you know, he said, I didn't like the song idea. I didn't think it was right for Van Halen. He actually thought, he said, like, I think it's a good song, but I don't like it for Van Halen. Like, Ted's tried to make that clear in the book, and I think some people miss that. What he's saying, I thought as a song, it was cool, and obviously it was catchy, but I didn't think it was right for Van Halen. And so... Ted sort of says, okay, let's do this and kind of says, you know, I'm not going to be the one to basically put the roadblock here on Eddie Van Halen's creativity. He does it. They come up with the lyric, excuse me, Dave comes up with the lyric for Jump and the rest is history. And, the, you know, even though Ted will say now, like, you know, I still don't like it. And people are always like, what are you talking about? Like when he does interviews, people are always shocked. What do you mean? Really? He doesn't like it. This means it's like, yeah, I think what he means is like, it's a good song, but I loved the ain't talking about love Van Halen. I loved the guitar and the way he put and Dave together, when he put it, he said, there's like, there's very few instances in rock history. We have an absolute signature situation. We have the, the guitar player or whatever it is, an instrumentalist and a vocalist who go together so well that it's, it's sort of a, a profound, sublime experience to listen to it. And that's what Ted would talk about it. And he said, like, why would I want to alter that? Like, why would I want to have Ed play keyboards where as creative as he was on keyboards and he was such a good songwriter, he said, to me, it was just another guy playing keyboards. He wanted to basically to showcase the virtuosity. He felt like Eddie Van Halen on keyboards to Ted wasn't showcasing Ed's virtuosity as a musician. And that, you know, I think that's a Ted thing that maybe hmm. not everyone can kind of wrap their head around because yeah. I can hear sort of like this ability. But I think what Ted's saying is like, there's like, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Dizzy Gillespie and Eddie Van Halen. Why would sure. I ever tell Eddie Van Halen, I mean, or, you know, Jimi Hendrix, hey, Jimmy, why don't you play drums on this track? You know, we'll, yeah. you know, we'll play, we'll have uh, Mitch Mitchell play guitar. So whatever, like, like, you know, Jimmy might be a very good drummer and might be a really cool drummer, but like, why would you ever take the guitar out of his hand? I think that's where Ted was coming from. With okay. This. That's interesting. However, when you have a truly, truly great pop song, it's like, you can't argue with it. Right. And I think that like, you know, there's those songs. There's, you know, we mentioned Motown before. We mentioned the Beatles. You're like, there's just certain things we mentioned, you know, Elvis Presley, whatever. Like, I think Jump to me, which again, it was kind of when I was becoming conscious of like the music that was going on around me. And, uh, so, you know, my childhood, I remember this song very well. And, uh, let's, we'll play it. But I mean, to me, it, it's like instantly. I actually want to, uh, also mention something where uh, I read a, it was a book. Um, I can't remember what book it was a book, a book about hip hop. Can't stop, won't stop by Jeff Chang. Yeah. But he uh -huh. talks about like kids in the Bronx were like jumping to this and like doing jump rope routines to jump by Van Halen. You know, kids that were part of like the hip hop circles in the Bronx. So like to me, this song is just so universal. It, you know, I, I don't know. I, I It's pretty much, I don't know what else you'd want in a pop song than jump. So let's play it.
Drumming. Wow. Yeah, these kind of offbeat. Yeah, it's kind of uh, deceptively tricky. You know, that's the uh, other thing here is where we can really point to Dave. His lyrics, right? That he came up with this chorus and song idea for the for the whole you know the idea to basically take a chance like you just jump and just go do it you know it's really a such a universal thing that anyone can relate to too it's another instance of where Dave um, you know probably doesn't get enough credit for coming up with something that was so like you said so able to cross boundaries beyond the sound of the song but the lyric is very you know anyone can relate to it really yeah absolutely and even just in the physical act just like little kids like to jump around you know right. what I mean? it's just such like a Infectious well, the, thing. And there's another clip I would urge people to go on YouTube and check out that when I saw this a few years ago, it blew my mind. Uh, it makes sense. There's a there's a clip from Soul Train of Jump being played on Soul Train. And of course, 99% African-American audience, or dan- you know, basically people dancing, 95% of them are black. And it's like, you know, it's just, it's sort of like a, you know, you think it's 1984 and this quote-unquote heavy metal, you know, whatever, a hard, hard rock band who's playing the synthesizer song that's being played on Soul Train, you know, and I always thought that, you know, that must have really pleased Roth as a guy who really felt akin to that sort of, um, you know, funk music and soul music. He must have really enjoyed that when he found yeah. that out, I'm sure. And despite Templeman's, you know, misgivings, it's actually probably, it's a very compact solo, but it's really one of Eddie's best solos. It's very melodic and, and just an indelible guitar solo in this song as well. And this part is so genius too. The uh, where they go back into the into the uh, to the chorus again. If that's not a hook, I don't know what is. Right? That's like <laughs> yeah. I find that very interesting about Templeman because to me, it just like. And then the guitar comes in, that assistant guitar at the end. It's just a very well-arranged song. And I think that's another thing that's probably underrated. I think sometimes... uh, um, Because Eddie is so virtuosic uh, on the guitar, um, I think sometimes his skills as a composer and arranger are probably overlooked. Mm -hmm. Um, because he really is a very clever arranger and one thing that I like about this album in general and I want it's a song I want to get to later but uh, I'll Wait is another synth one but I find that the way Van Halen incorporated synths was cool to me because a lot of bands of that time older bands kind of it was almost like hey like you know whatever this uh, Duran Duran is happening and stuff like that but like Van Halen essentially just like adds the synths as an instrument in lieu of the guitar. Right. And the rest of the track really isn't any different than something they would have done in 1977, right? Like they're not, it's still the big drum sound. And another one, shout out to Ted Devilman, another thing on these records, they got through the 80s without betraying like a good drum sound. 
like they never went in for that really heavily like gated snare kind of like or the, the, the really the really wet reverby stuff, right? Yeah, you know, like the the so the drums are always still like. I think that's another reason for me why these records don't sound dated as much as some other stuff from that period is that they they were uh, wise enough, or maybe Alex was stubborn enough. I don't know what it was, but to not go in for some of those kind of gimmicky things at that time, right? Um, so like the first album, this album starts off very strong. The next song is, um, you know, the video is iconic. The song is iconic. It's, you know, if you wanted the party aspect of Van Halen, I think Panama, I don't know what you would say, Greg, but this is kind of like typifies just Van Halen, the big arena party band to me, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, um, and this is one of these songs too, that, uh, Apparently the riff had been kicking around for a couple of years and Ed has talked about how it was inspired by ACDC actually. But it's, I think I said this on Twitter the other day is that one of the great genius things about Van Halen is like when he says it's inspired by ACDC, you know, you wouldn't be walking around going, that's an ACDC riff. Like sometimes with some of Ed's stuff, like you could hear certain things he does um, as a guitar player. If you're really a guitar geek, you can hear well, that sounds a little bit like Alan Holdsworth, especially on this record. But like in terms of the riffs and stuff, it really was never a matter of like going, Oh, they're following anybody. It would just be like, Oh, I like this feel. This is our ACDC riff. And yet it doesn't really sound like ACDC at all. If that makes sense. Yeah. I never would have gotten that out of this right. song ever. That's what he said. He said it was inspired by, you know, down payment blues or something like it was basically that, that type of feel is what he was going for. Interesting. That's, ooh, that's one of my favorite ACDC songs. That's good. Let's hear, let's hear Panama because this is just a jam. One thing I like about Van Halen is they have certain like accent beats that I know are time to like pyro at the concert. Right. Like right. that ooh, you know what I mean? Like I know for a f- I didn't I didn't see the concert, but I guarantee. Also, the brilliance of Roth here, and I say that with all care to use that right word because how many songs have we heard about cars that sound so cheesy in retrospect, like guys singing about cars? Right? It just doesn't. It doesn't usually sound like it. Just sounds kind of silly and it's such a cliche, right? It's like oh, I've got my mean machine and I'm cruising on the highway or something like that. And this whole song is in theory about a car, but could be about a girl. But it's about a car, about a supposedly about a dragster named the Panama that Ross saw. That's what he says. Uh, but, you know, it, he, there was just a way that they were able to, especially lyrically, approach some of these subjects. Roth was so good about making it where it just seemed to fit in the pocket of 
it makes you smile. But yet it never seemed to be like, as you said, like over, like there's an, maybe like a little bit of tongue in cheek stuff, but it never seemed like cliche or cringy, you know, where so many stuff that, so many songs about cars. Yeah. I mean, we go through and like, we could list 30 car songs about cars that are just like, yeah, that probably wasn't a good idea. You know, that sounds yeah. like silly. There's a certain intelligence with Roth that right. like, he knows it's over the top and ridiculous. You know it's over the top and ridiculous. And he's kind of winking at you saying like, you know, like this section right here, actually. Yeah. Well, I'll shut up here. Between my legs. He's the seat back. Which is just absurd, but yeah. But that's the thing about Roth is he pulls it off because I always think he's kind of like half, like kind of cracking himself right, up. Right, right, right. You know, and it's the type of thing you could like as a teenager, you could listen to the car like you'd like, you know, as a teenager, I'd everything I'd be like, Mom, turn this part up. And like, I'd, I'd like rewind it. Let's listen again. And she'd be like, what, what is she saying? Like, and I'd be like chuckling or something like that. But it's like, it's not, you know, it's just like one of these things that was like tongue in cheek and enough funny enough where you could like chuckle as a teenager, but it doesn't come off as like, I don't know how to explain it, like out of character for like what you'd expect for the coolness of Van Halen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not explaining it. He was just, he was very, like you said, very good about that sort of like not crossing into those lines where it just, you sort of, you know, it just seems, um, uh, to be regret, uh, regrettable in retrospect, like a lot of the '80s, like so much '80s stuff is obviously, you know, it just he was, yeah, in that 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 niche, especially. I think that was the thing it was just such a great band because um, a lot of the stuff Roth did later, which we're not going to get into, was a solo artist. I think sort of crossed into some of those areas where maybe hasn't aged as well, and there maybe were some missteps. But he, you know, in that context with Ed and Dave and the whole network of guys that were around them, um, you know, with Ted and the guys in the band and everything, it just was really just just a magical thing. Before we go to the next song, uh, I wanted to ask you something I'm, I was just sort of curious about is that, um, you know, obviously we listen to Van Halen 1 and that's, you know, clearly a band that's just hungry. You know, they've been working at this for five or six years. They want to be signed. They've been honing their craft in the clubs for a long time and they're just, they're ready for the prime time and they want to go get it, right? Um, 1984, um, you know, they've done a bunch of albums now. They've become a very huge arena mm-hmm. rock band. Um, I think, you know, internally, I would imagine they're starting to splinter a little bit in, the, in those, um, you know, tensions that always existed mm-hmm. between the Van Halen brothers and Roth are coming more to the fore. Um, they did some albums, which, again, I just want to shout out Fair Warning. Uh, that's a, a really cool, weird Van Halen record. But it's also very dark. It's it's probably the only, like, not party record that they ever right. did. You know what right. I mean? It's a very right. dark kind of has some weird songs on it. I always um, say it's like the most metal of the, like, of the Van yeah. Halen records. It kind of reminds me of Presence by Led Zeppelin. Uh-huh. Like, it's got some kind of bad vibes to it. You know what I mean? And it, it doesn't seem like super happy people are making that record, even though I think it's a great record. Um, and even some of the hits, like Mean Streets, are kind of, you know, very aggressive, you know? Um, Diver Down is kind of padded out with a lot of covers. I know that Alex and Eddie, in years after that, I, I was looking up some interviews, and they didn't sure. speak very highly of that record. So it almost get the sense of this this band is like, They've gotten big, they've gotten fat, they've gotten happy. The lead singer's got lead singer disease. You know, how do we account for the fact that they come back after all this with probably their most perfect record that they did since the first album? Well, I think a couple of things happened. I think, first of all, you had a guy who was a prolific songwriter. And I think that was the one thing with Ed Van Halen. They had tons of material, you know, even 
the thing is like the, the 25 song demo that they did with Templeman in 77, House of Pain, which is the last song on 1984, was a song from that demo. So they, they drew on that, that demo for, for one of the songs. But in addition, you know, I think the thing is that, um, Ed had his own studio now and was really able to experiment and to work through some of these songs. One of the things that was eye-opening to me in talking to Templeman so much and working in the book with him was, was his real misgivings about the building of, basically not the building of a 5150 studio, but basically the shift where the decision was made by um, Alex and Ed that they wanted to record up there, that they wanted to cut the record up there. Ted was really uncomfortable about that idea because... Well, he just felt that home studios have a tendency to get people to lose focus, uh, you know. And so there was this whole saga of the making of this record. But on the other hand, Ted has talked about, and I think it's, it's, I think it's easily understandable to people, is that if you have your own studio, a song like Jump, you could really perfect in a way, maybe with the old style of recording with Van Halen, where it was basically you rehearsed and then you went and slammed it out. Um, they had the time to spend him, uh, Alex, and Ed really working out these parts with some of these. Um, more unusual arrangements, especially things like um, Girl Gone Bad and Drop Dead Legs. The arrangements are a little bit more adventuresome than some of the other stuff they had done in more recent records, especially certainly for Diver Down, I think. And so to me, I think, you know, the whole, the building of the studio, Ed really having the chance to really nurture his keyboard addiction, for lack of a better term, is like love of keyboards and really go all over the, over that stuff over and over again. I mean, for me, that's really what, um, what allowed that record to, to, to take shape like that. I, the other thing to think about is it, it took a long time to make the record, relatively speaking. They started recording it in uh, May 1983. They had the US Festival, which interrupted them. That was in, in the um, Memorial Day weekend. But they, you know, they worked on it all the way up to basically the end of November. There's a whole saga about the end of the record. But basically, it was worked on for months and months and months, much longer than any other Van Halen record. So I think, you know, that sort of method of making a record, which was sort of anathema to Ted Templeman's approach to making records, you know, maybe allowed for some of these things to really breathe and grow um, and develop over those that that long, long summer. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the results obviously speak for themselves. And, and, and you know, this album, I think, in the same way that the first album just seems very inspired. You know what I mean? It, it just seems like they're firing on all, all cylinders. Um, the next song I wanted to play, actually, um, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, and it was a point that I wanted to bring up. Eddie is obviously renowned for, you know, pioneering the two-hand tapping technique and taking that to a next level and his solo and his lead playing. I think that his ingenuity and, and uniqueness and kind of eccentricity as a rhythm guitar player probably gets overlooked a bit because it's just not the type of stuff that's as flashy. Um, I wanted to play the song Top Jimmy because I think this, oh, yeah. this song is just... Um, he, he, he Did he play a lot of fingerstyle? It sounds fingerstyle to me sometimes his... Uh, his uh his rhythm playing um, you know he didn't really uh um, oh really no he it didn't sounds he like play it. with a pick um the beginning of of top jimmy is a ripley steve ripley stereo guitar so that was done by a guitar that actually had six separate tracks one for each string and you could actually pan the strings to either side of the stereo or anywhere in the stereo mix you wanted. And so when you listen in headphones, it kind of Whoa. ping-pongs back and forth. Um, so you're Steve talking Rip about you can mix each string of the guitar to a separate track? or to, Well, you could, or to a separate part of the stereo spectrum within a track. Weird. So it was a stereo guitar. And so Steve Ripley is a Tulsa guitar player 
who worked for Leon Russell and then had a band in the uh, 80s and, and 90s called The Tractors, a country band that was moderately successful. But Steve was um, kind of a kindred spirit at they met, met and uh, Steve was a guitar builder and came up with this idea of this guitar. And in fact, Ed was the guy who got Kramer to basically go ahead and make these guitars, these uh, Ripley guitars. And so, yes, there were actually six dials on it. You could actually go, okay, I want the E string um, all the way to the right. I want the G string all the way to the left. I want the B string all the way to the right. And I want the D string all the way to the left. And so when you hit the string, you know, you're hearing the different strings in different sides of the, of the headphones. And you can hear that on top Jimmy where it's ping ponging around. Um, and Ed talked about how he came up with kind of an oddball tuning too. Again, one of these things that you're, you know, if you're at sunset sound, you got to be in and out. Maybe you could do this in the basement of the house, but Roth, um, you know, Roth's mansion isn't their, their base home base anymore. It's now 5150 and Ed is sitting there all night long with Don Landy running tape and he's, you know, running these experiments and kind of working this stuff out. Yeah, let's hear top Jimmy. Cause this is just a, I think a really virtuoso rhythm guitar song. <laughs> Yeah, so that that's the ping that's pong. That's the there. Ripley, right? That clink, the the single strings. But I just contrast, you know, this to like so much of that kind of '80s kind of pop metal, where like the real default was kind of either like kind of just chugging on like eight or sixteenth notes, you know. Like Eddie's always active and he's always throwing in little fills and he's always kind of doing these almost like bluesy kind of, you know, he never settles. He rarely settles for the obvious thing. And the other thing is. Listen how it's a relatively clean tone. I mean, a lot of these the bands that follow them, and of course, went for like the story, like the stack of Marshall kind of cliche JCM eight hundred sound, and it's like it's super clean. But yeah, he does so many tossed off fills in between riffs. It's just amazing. <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about Top Jimmy as sort of a LA kind of character. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Roth was really, I think, maybe unlike some of the other guys in the band, you know, a guy who really loved getting out and seeing shows and kind of hitting the strip. You know, Michael Anthony wasn't going to go down the strip in 1981 and hang out with people, but Roth was the type of guy like, oh, Motley Crue is taking off. I'm going to go see Motley Crue. And he would go to all these um, these different cl- uh, no, nightclubs, Starwood and all these other places that were going, but he, he also um, would go to smaller places, and one of the guys who was really... Uh, kind of an unusual uh, attraction on the scene was this guy named Top Jimmy, who was a blues, basically a blues shouter. He was kind of part of this punk scene, but he did like kind of this blues, blues thing. And uh, Dave joined him on stage once, and they actually played. There's a picture of it. They played in one of these places with like a. It was like you know they they played in like a I don't know like a, a converted office, um, like you know like a, a tax office or something. It had like a drop ceiling with like wow. the, you know the foam. So like. One of the guys jumped up and it hit the ceiling and like this. I think the story is like part of that that drop ceiling kind of came down like the same so good that the roof fell in and we didn't stop the show and 
Um, you know, and so this was kind of Roth's tribute to this, this guy, but again, like such a, um, such a clever lyric, you know, even like when he talks about cool cat, which sounds like something out of like a fifties record. Right. But it's like, Oh, it's not here. He is singing it on a Van Halen record and it sounds totally cool. It's really, um, yeah, interesting because it's sort of a slice of life, Roth's life of like what he's doing. He's going yeah. out seeing all these, you know, he was very into like seeing bands and just being around. You know, again, part of that was probably like, I want to be David Lee Roth and I want to be out and, and with the people. But I think he really was interested in art and culture and interested in like this new, you know, basically these new waves of music that would come up. He, you know, he wasn't going to go see, Roth wasn't the type of guy who's going, Iron Maiden's coming to town. I'm just going to go see Iron Maiden. He probably thought Iron Maiden was fine, but he would rather see some, you know, some weird band on the Sunset Strip with guys with duct tape around their heads or something. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. no, really, right? Like, in like, in like playing synthesizers and like painting in between sets or something like that and giving away the canvases. That was Roth's thing. That's awesome. And he's like one of the biggest rock stars on earth and going to like small clubs. Yeah. He was, that would what he would do. Yeah. Um, he was definitely, you know, somebody who, who was a consumer of culture and I think a much more intense way than a lot of people was, you know, he didn't, you know, for all of his in, indulgences, he didn't lay back and get fat basically like and sit in the mansion and like, you know, polish the Rolls Royce. And he really got out and like wanted to consume all this stuff and see it and be around it. That's great. Um, let's, let's listen, uh, you know, this maybe is a, a showcase, uh, for Alex, uh, hot for teacher. This is another one, an iconic video, a very iconic video, um, and an iconic Van Halen song. And, um, but the, the intro to this is the drum intro to this is, is I think is very, uh, impressive. Alex, I think Alex, you know, is just, it's easy for him probably to slip into the background cause he's not a, a outlandish personality, but, um, he's a hell of a drummer, man. He's, he's really so solid and so inventive and, and, and I, I really admire the way him and Michael Anthony work together. And, uh, this is a great hot for teachers. I think the, the intro is a great showcase of his skills. like classic Roth here. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I heard this song as a kid, I just remember thinking like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like, even before I saw the video, like I heard the song on the record and I was like, this is the funniest thing. Like, I just loved it. Like, I just like, it was, you could relate to it and just the humor came through and you kind of could hear the clanking bottles and you kind of realized they were trying to do a schoolroom thing and you kind of like, you know, you sit in the back of the classroom and make jokes about the teacher and like whatever and throw paper airplanes you kind of you, you, and you're like this is on a record it was just 
you know, it was just kind of, again, like that thing that kind of separated Van Halen from all the followers. They just didn't quite, they just couldn't pull it off. It just wasn't, it wasn't in their DNA. I was homeschooled. There you go. Buddy. You're, you're, you're a little different, right? You're just... Yeah, it's, uh, it's a different rule set. <laughs> hey, Mom, I brought my pencil. So, Greg, I don't know if that was the interlude, but I, so at a certain point he says, I think the clock is slow. Yeah. I don't feel tired. But I've always contested that if the clock is slow, he would even be more tardy. <laughs> exactly. Right? So I, I, there's just a logic through point there that I think David didn't think about as a high school student. And there's also <laughs> another funny thing is that, uh, you know, if you listen to headphones, there's those types of things. And also there's actually a like a... I don't know if we we're allowed to curse on the podcast or not, but there's a couple of like things you can hear, like like you're like oh, like you're listening, like there's actually like a couple like very very softly spoken curses, you know, like in the background, which is even funnier. Like it's like you know that was always to me like oh they snuck the curses in, like in a headphone screen, like you're like what was that? Bring it back, you're like listen, oh oh, you can barely hear it. Um, you know they set up inside fifty one fifty, they brought in little desks and set up like cups and bottles and cans really? and knocked it over. Yep, yep, that was that was a. Uh, Ted told me that that was the thing. Like Ross, like yeah, we're gonna do. We're gonna set up a school room in here, guys. Come on now. And he like actually, they like, and they record. They, they set up the microphones and they they acted it out. Yeah, like you're you're talking in class, you know, and whatever. And I'm gonna talk. And that's what they did. It. He said he said they brought in the desks and made it into this whole like little classroom. Incredible. To kind of catch the the uh, atmosphere <laughs> of that. Oh man, I think the clock is slow. Yeah, here you go. <laughs> I don't feel turning. <laughs> I don't. I'm looking for logic somewhere where it probably doesn't belong, but. And you can be sure they probably did this like three or four, like this they probably did three or four times, and like kind of like you know to get the shtick down. I'm sure Roth kind of like perfected his stuff, and um, you know they probably had a track of this going. But yeah, it's. Uh, it was also so, um, you know, such a great way to kick off the second side of the record, where it kind of leads into "I'll wait," obviously, but it's so like kind of it sets every. Um, every cell in your body firing off, and then you have something a little bit more obviously uh, introspective or something. I don't know what the right word is for "I'll wait," which is, you know, kind of it was the sequencing was really good. Is my point? Like this is a great way to kick off the second side of the record to keep that energy up, and then you have to kind of go into the to the the next keyboard song, which is much more, I think, significantly more subdued than "Jump" is. Yeah, let, let's get into "I'll Wait" because I mean, to me, this is really highlight a highlight of the record. I think it's it's one of my favorite Van Halen songs. But yeah, it's a very dark feel, and and it's kind of, it's kind of an arty song for them, you know. And um, I believe, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I read somewhere that Michael McDonald was a co-writer on this. Uh, yes, there's a whole there's a whole uh, saga there, which I'm happy to tell the story. Um, yeah, the the deal was that I'll wait was something that Ed had worked on for most of the summer, and Ted's impression was it was just not coming together as a song. Roth could not come up with a lyric melody, a melody and a lyric that really seemed to work. He had parts of like maybe parts of the melody, parts of a lyric didn't really work. And so at some point as the, the kind of clock was running out, cause Ed was really interested in getting the song on the record Ed and out cause they liked it. They, uh, the way Ted tells the story that Dave asked if Ted would be willing to put in a call to Michael McDonald, the ultimate song doctor who Ted was close from with the Doobie brothers and the solo records. 
to kind of work with, just kind of kick, kick ideas around. Cause, cause Ted, um, said Dave was kind of stumped. He just couldn't quite kind of have the breakthrough. And, uh, they went into, uh, Templeman's office at Warner Brothers, David Lee Roth, Michael, <laughs> talk about something. We wish we had a video for this. David Lee Roth, uh, Michael McDonald and Ted Templeman and Ted Templeman's office at Warner Brothers with the gold records on the wall. And, uh, there was a, you know, a, a, a demo of it or, you know, whatever, a track. With the keyboard parts and uh Mike McDonald finished it off. He came up with the the chorus melody and uh kind of finished it off with Dave. And uh I know that this from talking to Don Landy, who was the band's longtime engineer, is that they came back to the studio the next day, Ted did, with a tape, and they played it, and it was Mike McDonald singing the the singing I'll wait. Again, I'm not sure the lyrics were exactly the same, but he sang the melody and he and and uh Don Landy remembered that there was a sort of rejoice, like, that's it. Like the, cause the melody, cause McDonald had figured out that chorus melody, uh, that and there's like, a, there's a tape, you know, maybe laying in a box of 5150, maybe Wolfie will find it one day of Michael McDonald singing. I'll wait. Wow. I hope they, I hope that surfaces. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's my Holy grail, man. <laughs> let's, let's listen to this. Cause I mean, number one, the synth, the synth sound on this, I don't know what patch he's using. It's amazing synth sound. And I just, I, this is a tremendous song. Those, yeah, those are those, backward symbols. Those simple chokes are reversed, or whatever. Or they're not choked yet. Yeah. Classic Alex Van Halen snare sound too, right? It's like yeah, immediately that kind of ringing. But here again, I love that that when they try to kind of do synth stuff, it doesn't feel like they're going new wave because there's so much space in this track. Like it doesn't really sound like anything else, you know. The other thing I always thought was really worth more talking about about Van Halen is the tempos. You know, I'm not a musician, but it always seems like a song like this. Those guys, Alex and Ed and whoever else, kind of really just kind of always kind of found the right beats per minute, you know, to kind of make the song. Like you could play this. I can imagine playing this song faster, right? You could play it faster, but they sort of had that right. I don't know how to explain it. Mm -hmm. So this is the no way. That's what that's what Michael McDonald came up with. I'll wait, right. And he, right. I can kind of hear that actually. I can kind of hear the Steely Dan type harmonies there, like Peg. Yeah. In fact, that's the way Don. You know, again, it was Don Landy singing to me, so I, you know, I don't want to put Don on the spot. Don's a, Don's a good singer, but he's not Michael McDonald. Um, you know, but he, the way Don kind of sang it, he kind of implied that that's what Mike had done. Like Mike had done the that higher, maybe sang it even higher than Roth had sang it. You know, like, like. You know, that sort of like that peg style, you know, up there, kind of the way he sang it. So, yeah.
Yeah, I love this bridge. And this, so- actually, this solo is. solo that's another thing I mean I, I think compared to some of the people that sort of came after Ed definitely had that ability to do the eruption thing but I don't he didn't always have to do that you know what I mean he was very melodic and kind of had this almost liquid kind of quality to his solos you know it wasn't just shredding for the sake of shredding you know yeah, and this solo in particular kind of reminds me of um what followed next, which is like the dream solo, for example, is like super. That's like actually an incredibly brilliant solo, which is completely melodic. I'm sure he worked it out. Obviously, he worked it out ahead of time. But like you said, it's, there's no overplaying, right? It, it, it didn't fit with the song, so he didn't say, "I have to like play, you know, a whole bunch of notes in this one measure here." He sort of just made it fit for the song. And I'll wait. Particularly, it's another one that it sort of, you know, it still has that Eddie Van Halen signature stuff, but it, it's very. It fits with the song. I mean, that yeah. that was really uh, something else that, that was developing at this time, too, is that Ed was... One of the reasons there was tension with Ted Templeman is that Ed was feeling more and more like he wanted to make the decisions as a producer. Like, he was ready to make those decisions and was kind of butting up against Ted, who was, you know, basically going, I'm the producer, and here's what I think. And they sort of had more of a... You know, had, um, were starting to knock heads on some of this stuff, or especially around the synth stuff. But you can sort of hear that, you know, there's like a... Uh, Ed really had a song, uh, you know, a song sense that he'd grown and really yeah. kind of um, gotten a grip on what he's, his vision for his music was going to be, which wasn't going to be all about like heavy riffs and mm-hmm. and um, these these solos that kind of melt your face. My one theory, and this may be a crackpot theory and have nothing to do with reality, is that the way that they do the synth stuff with like the big booming, you know, traditional drums, a lot of space. I feel like Eddie was one of the only people that might have been influenced by Led Zeppelin's last album, In Through the Outdoor. Mm. Like, I know everyone's, like, ton of influence of Zeppelin on all, you know, heavy rock bands of the 70s. But I feel like there was some, you know, like, that end period of Zeppelin when, they, when Paige started to get a little bit into synths. And uh, I don't know. I always feel like I wonder if Eddie was, like, a, a fan of that record. Cause it's well, some, yeah, I think some, some of things... the tones, the synth tones are there are sort of in that same, that same neighborhood. Yeah, from In Through the Outdoor, the John Paul Jones stuff. Yeah, you know, Ed was also really into the, um, you know, uh, UK and into in the Dead of Night and all, all that um, that sort of uh, English prog stuff. He was in, you know, there was a lot of um, the keyboard stuff on there. I think probably influenced him as well too, because he was very into um, into that stuff. Because of Holdsworth, you know, sort of as a Holdsworth guy, he really um, liked all of those records that Holdsworth played on, which had a lot of. Um, keys as well yeah but, alan uh, holdsworth for people that don't know he's not super famous his name's alan holdsworth he's a very famous kind of prog and jazz fusion english guitar player of the 70s and 80s yeah yeah who ed was um was very good friends with and uh was heavily influenced by so if you listen to solo like on drop dead legs or something a lot of those legato runs with um by ed and there are very holdsworthy and for lack of a better term was one of the, one of the probably the only guy other than clapton who right really um you know, Ed really was like, wow, this guy is like super special and like was kind of a game changer for Ed and influenced his style in a very direct and clear way. All right. Well, we, we've kept you a long time and we have a few 
community questions about Van Halen we'd like you to answer. So what what should we play last? There's Girl Girl Gone Bad, there's House of Pain, there's Yeah, I mean let's do uh House of Pain was the B side on the jump forty five and it was actually I had the, the forty five before I had the album. So this was really my um first taste of what like I like the heavy side of Van yeah. Halen was. I'd heard Pretty Woman on the radio a couple of years earlier and then I heard Jump and then this was like whoa as you know again as a guy who wanted to play guitar was kind of like strumming chords this really the guitar playing on here was really incredible i thought and uh, this is a, a song that dates back to like 1976 or 70 probably 75 actually so a very old song yeah it's kind of cool so they they basically end the roth era with a song that dates back before the first album right right Let's, yeah this is this is this is a heavy one this is they're more kind of you know like you said they're more zeppelin kind of sabbath side This song has a very, which I brought up a couple times, but fair warning kind of feel. Yeah, right. If you like this vibe, that's fair warning is definitely this kind of darker, heavier Van Halen vibe. Uh, drumming too, like I, I think you know Alex Van Halen is one of the. He's like a, you know the Scotty Pippen of of, uh, of heavy rock, right? It's like you happen <laughs> to play right, you're like overshadowed only because the other guy is so great. Any other team, you would have been like, you know, like you would be the guy. And Alex is a great drummer, but of course, when you're playing with your brother, who's a you know a world changing musician, it's like you, he gets lost. But the drumming in this song is is phenomenal, phenomenal. Eddie going off here. Rest yeah, in peace, man. Wow. There's, there's a rhythm guitar track underneath this too, right? So they layered this one a little bit. Again, part of that, probably that 1984, you're in your own studio. You know what? Let's put a rhythm guitar track on it. Underneath the solo. I think the only appearance of Cowbell in 1984... Yeah, so this is the classic, like the B-side of this song. It's like the least, uh, you know, it's probably all your listeners know, right? The least, in theory, the least marketable song on the record. The least likely to be a single. The, the, the B-side of the A-side of the, you know, the first of the A-side of the first single. So, but a great, great track. Absolutely. Great album track. Yeah, well, 
like I said, both these albums, man, they're 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 Trump tight. You know, they don't. There's there's really not a lot of fat or any really. I think in Van Halen one or 1984. So uh, I'm glad we could do these. Um, Greg, can you stick around? We have a few community questions about Van Halen that we you know we're hoping you could chime in on as the it. expert. Um, Jason, you want to switch over? Also, I, I want to say real quick, um, we're part of the MinMax Network, um, and it's their year anniversary. Um, we want to say. So much thanks to the community, the Patreon supporters. Um, and in particular, I want to personally thank Ben Hansen for approaching me uh, to kind of, you know, do this show. Um, and, and just uh, we've had so much support from our community and, and the people on, on you know, Discord and, and everything else. So uh, we thanks to you. It's been a great year. And, uh, you know, you enable us to, to do this show. Um, and, you know, present, you know, people like Greg that have a lot of really awesome information and, and hopefully we all learn about music together. So just want to uh, say our sincere, sincere thanks on the year anniversary. So let's get into community questions. Matt, uh, not to scare you, but you and I are going to have to think of something real good for our one year after, after a year of CrossFade. Yeah, uh, I don't, I'm not going to take much time talking about it. We'll we'll think about it. Yeah. Uh, look forward to it, listeners. But yes, thank you so much for supporting MinMax through the through the months, uh, and looking forward to many more. And like previous episodes of CrossFade, uh, this one is completely free. But as a supporter of MinMax on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/MinMax, you can shoot us questions to answer and songs to listen to. Um, not to mention, you get a whole bunch of great MinMax videos and podcasts, like the MinMax Show uh, Refreshed, hosted by former CrossFade guest Ana Diaz. Uh, access to the MinMax Discord, special bonus content, and a whole lot of other shit. Uh, also, if you've got time, we'd love for you to rate and review CrossFade on iTunes. That's how we get bigger and better. So thank you again. Uh, Jeff Cork, uh, who is a contributor to MinMax as part of as one of the hosts of BetterQuest and just an all-around mensch, uh, says that as a child of the 80s, he is very old. Van Halen was a constant present on, presence on MTV. The videos were interesting and funny in an era that was saturated with lots of self-serious posturing. Uh, also, they were very, very horny. <laughs> when David Lee Roth left the band, he continued to make funny and very horny videos, but Van Halen continued to explore the medium with videos like the one for right now. The question is, how important were music videos for the early and continued success of Van Halen in your view? And do you think they would have been nearly as big if they had completely ignored videos as a channel? I love that question. Um, you know, I think Van Halen kind of tracks a lot of the best bands and how they handled music video in the 70s and 80s. So the first Van Halen videos were, people probably know, live performance videos. They did some for um, Van Halen 2, and then they did some on Fair Warning, which are kind of legendary among Van Halen fans, some live videos. And then they decided to make a shift for Diver Down and do a, a video video. And actually what they did was they they made a they made what they called a mini movie, which was, which was, they didn't, you know, they basically shot this footage and just overlaid the music over it. No one like lip synced to the song or anything. It was just this sort of idea of doing this video. And it kind of um, gained quite a bit of notoriety because it got quote unquote banned from MTV. It's kind of laughable at the end, but the sort of the big reveal is that the woman you think is, is needing to be rescued by the guys in Van Halen is actually a man. So that was the, that was apparently too controversial from MTV in 1982. The punchline is that when Pete Angelus, who was, um, the video director and then lighting director, longtime lighting director for Van Halen became David Lee Roth's manager slash creative partner under Roth's solo career, kind of took the reins in the video. I mean, he really, I think, figured out the formula. And I mean that with all, uh, as a compliment for how to present 
the image of Van Halen on MTV with, you know, Panama Dave driving around in his red 51 Mercury, backstage parties, messing around on stage, hot for teacher, the whole shtick with that, with the, with going into high school and you have mini Eddie and mini Dave. You know, those videos were just super important. The final piece of this I would want to talk about, which is really interesting, is that, that really on, on, uh, 5150, there was almost a concerted effort by the guys in Van Halen not to do videos. I have my own theories about that, but they, they did the dreams video, which was the blue angel footage with dreams, but they kind of decided to stay away from videos in 1986. And yet it didn't seem to, you know, they did a couple of MTV specials. They did the live without a net, the live thing, and they did Van Halen unleashed, which was kind of a documentary with some live footage mixed in. I don't think it really hurt them at all, actually, compared to what Roth did, which was much more of the, you know, uh, Yankee Rose and in the spirit of his uh, work with Angelus on, uh, Hot for Teacher and all this other stuff. And I don't actually think it hurt Van Halen at all. In fact, I think it actually um, kind of showed that you could actually sort of um, neglect the genre in some way. I mean, I don't, you know, the Blue Angels video was fine, but people wanted to hear the song. It really wasn't, you know, the Jets were cool and everything, but, you know, people weren't tuning into the video because it was a funny video or, or a clever video or somebody was dressed a certain way that you wanted to see or something was going on. Um, like a lot of eighties videos that sort of like pushed your buttons as a cultural consumer. This was just about the song and, and, you know, the song was wildly popular. And of course those guys, all their songs were on the radio. Um, and so I'm not sure that totally answers the question, but it's interesting because Dave obviously continued with Yankee Rose and going crazy. He really continued on that sort of building upon that, making these visually, uh, overwhelming videos in some sort of way that sort of, you know, you couldn't help but enjoy because you have Dave in your face and he's shaking his butt. And there's like this, these, you know, these, Weird women wearing, you know, uh, sunscreen on their face that's too heavy and you don't quite know what's going on, whether at the beach, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to add other than that. that that's a, a great answer. And I think that, you know, absolutely, you know, I think even a video as simple as Jump, which is really just a studio live performance, I think the magnetism of, of Roth, and I think Eddie in his own way was very magnetic. You know, he had that, that, iconic grin like i just never i never remember another another artist another musician that just looked like he was enjoying himself as much mm -hmm. playing guitar as eddie van halen like he just and almost like to the point where it's almost like like he's almost impressed like look at what i can do you know what i mean like it, like he's almost just like laughing at himself like how the fuck do i do this stuff you know what i mean uh i just want to bring up there was a piece that npr ran uh just after eddie's passing that is about it's called understanding eddie van halen's teen idol appeal and that headline caught me enough to think like i then watched the jump video again and it, it does the way they describe it is like a, a confidence but also like a bashfulness somewhat uh, that, that Eddie sort of exudes on screen. And I'm sure that's feeding into what both of you were saying about the importance of video to the, to like the continued success of that band. Yeah. He was just had a, a certain magnitude. Mm -hmm. All right. Hit us. Yep. We got one from Nobby Buchholz who asks what artists passing impacted you the most. Um, Nobby, uh, mentions, uh, Dimebag Daryl from Pantera was a, was a big hit for, for him, uh, at 20 years old. Um, and of course now with Eddie's passing, it's, it's quite a, relevant topic so can you guys think of any other artists that uh, that really really struck hit hard when they when they passed yeah i mean i think for me the most the two the two deaths that i remember affecting me the most of celebrity deaths would have been thurman munson the baseball player i was a yankee fan as a kid and he died in a plane crash in 79 and you sort of you turned on the yankee game and suddenly the person who was there two days ago playing baseball there was an off day he was flying and he crashed his plane he's gone but the the musician you know more i'd say more than eddie 
because I think I was somehow, you know, I knew that Eddie wasn't a hundred percent and kind of think a lot of people knew that was the, was the Stevie Ray Vaughan death, which was, I had seen Stevie about a month before I'd seen him four times. He was one of my uh, favorites. I really have never recovered from that. I, st- I still don't listen to a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan music when I used to listen to it all the time. And it's not a matter of like, I don't like Texas flood anymore. It's just, I never really fully, you know, I don't know. It just it sort of causes me still distress to listen to that. I just can't quite, you know, on some level, accept that the guy was in a helicopter and flew into the side of a mountain after he just played with Eric Clapton and was sober. And, you know, it was just, to me, it was such a, a devastating thing um, as a person who loved, loved his music. Um, I certainly could get closer to sort of imitating Stevie Ray Vaughan in some sort of very vague sense that I could ever Eddie Van Halen. And so, you know, that was part of my thing too. You could sort of play along a little bit to some of Stevie Ray Vaughan stuff and make it sound plausible at least you know and it just was i just loved everything about it the songs and the, the vibe and the hendrix influence and just the whole thing and so that was that was devastating for me and i still like i said i still don't go out of my way to, to listen to and we'll turn it off if it comes on but i just it's just i can't really get back to that place of fandom because of the, the loss yeah no that was a i know a, a sh- it's when it's shocking like that I, or, or sudden i guess it's it's kind of a different different thing um for me i i guess the Growing up for me, um, and I, I really didn't get into their 70s stuff to way after the fact, but like some older brothers and, and things like that. I, in particular, I was in a small town and Rush was particularly popular, I think, oh, yeah. in my small town. Um, so I think, God, it was only this year, I think. This, 2020 is a weird year. But Neil Peart, um, Neil Peart from Rush, uh, you know, I just, I just respected how Rush, um, just conducted themselves as a band for so many years. Uh, I think they followed their own muse. I think they were generally considered like really nice people and treated people well and, and his ability and his devotion to the craft. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, to tie it back a little bit, I think if there's an Eddie Van Halen of drums, it might be Neil Peart. Sure. Um, just in terms of what he brought technically that was kind of built off the sixties, but just took it to another level. Um, and then another one that was uh, I, I really took very hard was David Bowie. Um, he had just released an album that was, in, in retrospect, really about his own death that I had gotten actually the week before he died. And I was really, I was like, wow, this is like the best Bowie record in like 30 years. Um, and, you know, Bowie to me just represented a certain possibility of music um, mm-hmm. and, and his, his just endless... Uh, appetite to try to find new avenues of music and, and the, what he meant to, I think a lot of people that didn't feel like they fit in, mm-hmm. uh, it, to society in, in certain ways. And, and just, you know, and also just a great songwriter, a great performer, a great singer. So I think Neil Peart and, and Bowie, uh, I felt maybe more personally in some ways, um, just because of, I think the connection that I felt to, to rush and to David Bowie. Yeah. I. There aren't a lot of artists that I grew up loving that have passed yet, but I'm sort of bracing for that to happen. But David Bowie was was one of them. Um, I remember, I think we were working in the same place at this uh, when when news of his death broke, and man, with Black Star to just sink into for weeks at a time. That's another one. Yeah, that's that a dark kind of like Greg with <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of like Greg with with uh, with Stevie Ray Vaughan. It's it's hard to go back to that album just because I sank so much of my mind and heart into that album, listening to it and like deciphering yeah. and grappling with it. And the other thing with that is it's so clearly like I'm making this before I die. You know what I mean? That album is just mm-hmm. clearly him like wrestling with his own death. So those are two that right. came to mind for me. Mm-hmm. 
uh, on a maybe lighter note, but not so Van Halen focused, uh, Tim Laro asks, what is your favorite example of a song that uses spoken word audio? <laughs> go for it. It sounds like you got a good one. Oh, no, I'm just laughing because I'm like, everything comes back. I can go like, let's, you know, I'm running a little bit hot tonight. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go there. That's my favorite song with spoken word audio is, is the, is the middle part of Panama. No, um, you know, in all seriousness, uh, you know, I, I would think, I'd have to go visit the Doors catalog and, and think more about that. But uh, as a junior in high school kid, there was a Doors revival, and my uncle had kind of gotten turned, as I said, to kind of turn me onto the Doors. Spent so a lot of time listening um, to that stuff. So it may be something like from the end or something like that. I'm not sure that quite fits with what the the, uh, the spirit of the question is. But oh no, that to be totally a lot, is yeah. a lot of that, like in with with Morrison doing poetry while in the middle of these songs. You know, I, I want to say that I kind of. Love the Doors, maybe like I, I first discovered them when I was like, you know, 13, 14. And then I kind of rejected them as I was like a college kid and became more hip and stuff. And now, like the last five years, I'm like way back on the Doors bandwagon. They're an amazing band. Um, I'm going to name an obscure song. Uh, if people want to check it out, it's a band called Slint. Um, they were from Louisville, Kentucky, about the early 90s, kind of a, I guess, post rock band or I don't know, in that zone. It's a song called Breadcrumb Trail. It's kind of a creepy song with this sort of weird uh, story that's being told, very hushed tones over it. And so anyway, uh, the album's called Spiderland by Slint. Um, I'm a big fan of it, so check that out. Will do. Uh, mine is Thrills by Cake. Uh, man is born, man lives, and man dies, and it's all vanity. Whatever that uh, sound bite is that goes over it, I guess I guess it's like uncredited. Maybe they recorded it themselves. But that's that's like top tier groove and just a really good use of of spoken word in a song to me uh jason wojner asks what band did you dislike as a teenager but eventually grew to love into adulthood as a teenager i actually did not like van halen that much because i was a pretentious contrarian who hated any music that didn't have notably profound lyrics regardless of the incredibly <laughs> impressive musicianship i grew to really appreciate them as an adult however uh that's that's not jason daphnis that's jason wojner but i do consider myself a pretentious contrarian uh but the question i guess is what bands uh, didn't click with you as a teenager or that you rejected, but then as you grew, you started to appreciate more. So, uh, you know, one that I haven't fully gone all the way in with, but I, I definitely, I've been, uh, got a few of their, uh, uh, vinyl rips of some of their 12 inches, uh, Duran Duran, which would have been like a, a anathema to everything I, I cared for in 1985 or 86. Yeah, but, but they're uh, good though, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I really was actually, you know, some of the, you know, again, I heard all this stuff. My sister was a huge fan. So like planet earth and all, like she had the records. I, I, you know, um, but listening to some of those, um, those records and those songs really made me appreciate the, the, the distinct vocal, like the, basically that, uh, Simon the Bond has a distinct voice and they were, you know, they were, they were very well crafted, um, songs. And of course the other thing that's sort of ironic, I, I, I did the Wikipedia dive in that. And then they had this moment where they split up and they were doing solo projects and like there was Arcadia and there was whatever else there was, you know, and it's like, I was like, Oh, and you know, they, they didn't end up like, Hey, if I recall, they didn't end up hating each other like Van Halen did, but they were, they actually did the kind of like the stones did too, where they're like sniping at each other, but they're doing their own thing. And then they eventually come back together and do steel wheels at the end of the decade, which obviously didn't happen with Van Halen. But yes, I, I uh, remember those records too, like kind of the splitting up of taking a break albums. Um, and some of that stuff is okay, actually, too, that Arcadia stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't say that this is an artist I disliked, other than it was just very kind of not what I was into at all. You know, given you know, when you're younger, I think you, you're more drawn, drawn more to heavy music and things like that. 
But over the years, there was enough artists uh, like Prince, uh, Robert Plant, Neil Young, uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, mm. who I, I guess I just, you know, she's probably not the type of music that like a, a 15 and 16 year old male kid in the Midwest is going to really gravitate to. But I guess I always kept trying to like her over time just because I would always hear of, you know, really, really, you know, I know Prince, Prince was an enormous fan. I know Robert Plant's an enormous fan. And I just kept hearing enough things and like Neil Young and Stephen Stills and David Crosby will always say like, she's the great kind of genius or Bob Dylan. will talk about her. So I I kept kind of trying with it. And finally, like a few years ago, it kind of clicked and I became like a big Joni Mitchell fan. And and she's an amazing guitar player, an amazing singer, uh, lyricist, songwriter. I mean, she's kind of the whole package, Um, you know, but she just has a very different kind of feminine quality um, that I think is kind of unique to her. For sure. Uh, Gabriel Logue says, and I dispute this fact, but he says that somebody has to ask Sammy Hager or David Lee Roth. And what is your favorite song from each era? Oh, the, the favorite song from each era. So, you know, I always say I could do a different song every every time I do it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say I, I love saying this because it's so it's so outrageous to some people. I'm gonna say "Dancing in the Streets" is my favorite Van Halen song. <laughs> what? Nice. Wow. Okay, that's outrageous. Uh, and I'm gonna make the case why. You know, um, not only does it have Eddie Van Halen synthesizer playing on it, it also is a Motown song, which reflects back Van Halen's um, roots into the back into that era from their cover band era. It has an incredible Jimmy Page style. Guitar solo from Eddie Van Halen. And also, along with the incredible harmonies and great drumming by Michael, uh, and Alex, uh, excuse me, the harm, yeah, harmonies by, uh, Michael and Ed, great drumming. Here's the punchline. It has a disco bass line in it from Michael Anthony in the middle of it, which I always thought was kind of a nod to their, their roots as a mid seventies band that had to play cool in the gang and, um, that type of stuff, uh, Ohio players and stuff. So yeah, I, you know, I love that song and I will always defend Diver Down to the Death. So I'm going to say that's my favorite song. For the Sammy era, uh, quicker answer. I, I love, uh, Source of Infection, which is one of these high powered, um, Van Halen boogies that, you know, even if the lyric is kind of dumb that Sammy wrote, uh, love is a source of infection isn't exactly poetry, but it's, there's something that was just so, um, adrenaline driving for me when I would hear Eddie and Alex kind of kick into these shuffles that were like double time shuffles. It was always the, my favorite part of Van Halen music. So, uh, source of infection. Well, I mean, to the question, I think, I mean, to me, the Roth era is clearly better. I mean, I think they're just a more intriguing band. I mean, not to diss Sammy. Um, cause I mean, really, I probably grew up more in the Hagar era and, and them being like a huge band. Um, I will say my favorite Van Halen song of all time is Unchained. To me, I yeah, just like, I, I just find that song so inspiring. I just like, it, it just gets me so pumped up when I hear Unchained, like that chorus and the breakdown, the one break coming up thing. It's just, to me, it's just an iconic Van Halen song. Um, for the Hagar era, I think a friend of mine once said like, they're like that Van Hagar is like Air Force recruiting music. And so like I'll go with Dreams. I just think Dreams kind of like typifies that kind of anthemic yeah. sort of synthesizer driven uh thing. And I think Sammy's, you know, Sammy's a very appealing vocalist, I think, when he kind of goes for it and there's this upper register of his. Um for a a Hagar era sleeper there's a song of, i've been listening i listened to a bunch of van hagar um this week too um but summer nights off 5150 mm-hmm. is kind of a cool little fun sleeper to me i like that song a lot one final uh 
tidbit here is that there's actually an article that circulated from AP, I think, or UPI in like 1991. And like Sammy was actually celebrating, we're not, I'm not trying to get political here, but he was basically celebrating that in the first Gulf War that the pilots, somebody told him that like the military guys were into Van Halen. And he was like, you know, Sammy tends to be very pro-military and was like very excited about that, you know? So which were to your, to your point, you know, that was, there was actually an article written about that, like, you know, Van Halen <laughs> is the soundtrack to the, yeah. the military for fighting the war. And Sammy yeah. was like, yes, I love this. You know, I love it. <laughs> I'm 100% Sam, serious. I'll send yeah. you the article. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Sammy seems like a good sort. Uh, he seems like a, you know. Definitely. A good guy. Good, he's good dude, so definitely. Much, it's funny. He's so much older than you think he is. Yeah. Like, he looks he pretty like, young. He was born in the Truman administration. That yeah, he's, but he's like 73, 70. Yeah. Is he like 75? Yeah, I mean, something like God, that. 73 crazy. or 74, yeah. Uh, not to take us way too far off track, but Greg, as a complete Van Halen newbie. One of the songs that I had never heard before that I was really caught by off of Fair Warning uh, is "Push Comes to Shove." Can, do you have any quick like takes or thoughts about that? That sounds like a fucking like a, a Hot Space era Queen track. Uh, I, I love it. I love it. I do. Beyond words. The um, you know the the very strong rumor I would say, and I think it's probably factual, is that that is actually Eddie Van Halen playing bass on that track. Um, <laughs> Ooh, all right. So. You know, I, I wasn't there and I can't tell you with 100% certainty that's the truth, but that's, I have, I've had on pretty good, um, pretty good sourcing that that was, that was Eddie, um, playing bass on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of those things where, um, you know, Roth was into reggae and Roth really liked, I mean, Roth liked black music. He really did, I think, much more than Eddie and Alex did. He was much more comfortable, um, consuming and sort of inhabiting those types of sounds. And I think, I suspect that was part of what drove that song that Roth was probably like, you know, reggae is big. We should try to do something like whatever, like kind of that's that push and pull songwriting. And maybe he heard that um, riff on guitar or something or sort of said, oh, you know, we should do a, a reggae feel for it. Um, and yeah, it's a really great, another one of these great Van Halen vibe songs because it's that um, spoken word part at the beginning from Roth talking about is there anything left in the bottle? Is it cold in here? That sort of, you know, boring Friday mm-hmm. night type of thing where you don't have anything to do. It just, you know, really, uh, um, memorable from that standpoint but also the of course the solo uh is uh is so good too there's the whole i mean the whole thing is just one of these things again i always think like imagine your your successful hard rock band says we're going to do a reggae influenced song it doesn't usually work it usually sounds you know but like a band like zeppelin could do blues they could do jazz they could do folk they could do whatever they could do it and it sounded like zeppelin it was the same thing with van halen van halen could do a big band song on diver down and it sounded good it sounded plausible and it's you believed it you you believed like oh these guys decided to do the song and it sounds great i love this you know where you would be like any other band you'd be like uh i don't think a 1930s you know big band jazz song was a good idea for you guys <laughs> it's just this is a disaster <laughs> you know your next song's about like riding in the car with your girlfriend and trying to buy beer whatever like it's just not it's not gonna work and those guys could pull it off nice thank you for that insight i love that song uh and our last question of the evening uh matt you're never going to be able to escape video games no matter how hard you try Greg, you mentioned Guitar Hero earlier, yeah. uh, just in context. Did you ever play the Van Halen version of that game, and what did you think of it? Uh, I didn't. That was, you know, my video game ended with, like, Sega Genesis. That was sort of the end of my video game uh, career. So, But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a huge, a huge cultural event. And in addition, as I think we talked about it a little bit, was one of the nice outcomes of that was that those songs on the DVD, or the, or the, excuse me, the, the game discs had the multi-tracks embedded in them and people figured out how to rip mm-hmm. those tracks off. So you could have, they weren't the best sounding. They were kind of MP3-ish quality, but you could have the drum track from, you know, any number of, or the guitar track from any number of songs. And it was really cool to hear 
um, all these different songs, particularly the Van Halen songs for me, but uh, ACDC, all these different songs, just the guitar track, we could actually listen and go, oh, wow, it's like the soloed, you know, the soloed multi-track in some sort of way. So Mm -hmm. I was, yeah, that's my, uh, my answer to that. Nice. Yeah. Matt, did you ever play Yeah, I I loved it. I enjoyed it. It was, you know, obviously it made kind of pretending you were Eddie somewhat easy. (laughs) And that's great. Um, I don't know if it was the best Guitar Hero game. I don't think they were necessarily like as involved to see like the Metallica one where I think Lars and Kirk were pretty like excited about it and were a little more personally involved in kind of crafting it. I think Van Halen, it felt a little bit more like, hey, you know, this is cool. Somebody wants to pay us money. However, you know, I got to like pretend I was Eddie Van Halen and like that's a good thing. Uh, then that ends our community-focused questions segment. Uh, the last thing that I do as part of our episode is to introduce the last song we're going to play. Uh, it is a community-chosen song picked by uh, Main Max supporter Dan Willey, who suggests Topanga Lawrence by Charmer. It's kind of like an emo math rock type uh, bedroom pop vibe. Uh, and we'll play that as we uh, outro, but I'll let, uh, or excuse me, I'll let uh, Matt take us out. Yeah, well, Greg, number one, thanks for giving us so much time. I'm a huge fan of the book. I look forward to reading the Ted Templeman book. And this has been like uh, just a super fun discussion. And we, we so much appreciate all the, the knowledge and insight and history you brought to this. And, you know, hopefully there's some people that, you know, aren't super familiar with Van Halen that come away with a, 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 a more well-rounded uh, impression of the band and, and their impact that they had. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was a really good conversation. I got to kind of delve into a lot of nooks and crannies of things that yeah usually you just don't have time on a podcast to talk about so that was great thank you guys for having me yeah all right take care thank you uh greg where can people find you uh they can find me on twitter at greg renoff and uh i'm on instagram at g renoff g-r-e-n-o-f-f but yeah i'm probably most active on twitter i'm available on facebook as well but i find uh twitter is a little more useful for talking about the things i want to talk about without yeah. Got a lot of memes and other things that I'm not as interested in. So I spend more time on Twitter. But yeah, I'd love to connect with people. And um, yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, everyone. Read Van Halen Rising. It's available on Amazon and anywhere you can buy books. Um, great book. Thanks so much, Greg. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, ride it out with the community pick for the song here. Two weeks, two albums, two voices. Tune in. Till then, Matt is at Matt Helgeson and I'm at Nintendoofus. Bye. Distance between
Shoot. 